Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over a 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to BlackTalkRadioNetwork.com. Helping you filter through the noise. Real talk. Black talk. The internet is full of half-truths and all-out lies. We've all seen them and many people on social media complaining about it. Here's your chance to show and prove. WorldAfropedia.com is a black-owned and operated encyclopedia. There are several thousand articles, but we need help. We can't uncover all the truth ourselves. So please, join us and become a writer, editor, or blogger for WorldAfropedia.com today. Every little bit counts. We owe it to the future generations to put the truth out there. Visit WorldAfropedia.com, the African-centered encyclopedia a global database of African knowledge for the purpose of bringing about global African wisdom and understanding. WorldAfropedia.com Come in. Hey, Freeman. Hey. Come on in. Listen, we're going into Washington. You want to come along with us? No, got some studying to do. They've been letting us in town for a month now, man, and you ain't been out of here yet. Well, nuts in here. Well, maybe next time. Maybe you got to cool it. Cool it? Mm-hmm. Cool it. If you weren't so eager to please the white man and send the grading curve up, there'd be three times as many of us here now. What kind of Tom are you, anyway? Same as you, I guess. Except that I don't try to have it both ways. And you better watch what you say about white folks. Behind that back, this place could be You calling me a Tom, man? Well, none of us would pick for our militancy now, will we? Now, why don't you go away and let me alone? Why don't you join the team, man? Team? Man, I'm not playing any games. Man, you just don't belong. I think you'd be happier with a mop in your hands. Like your mama. Let's step outside now. No. No. You don't want to step outside with me. Because, baby, I would kick your ass. Come on, man. Come on. No, 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 no wait a minute, man. No, wait a minute. This fool is crazy, man. Context of white supremacy, Gusty Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Friday, September 23rd, 2016. 
So I have been told this is our second study session on Sam Greenlee's The Spook Who Sat by the Door. Uh, We are picking up on chapter five, chapter five, uh, the audio segment that you just heard. Uh, That is from the film adaptation, uh, which was released in 1973. That scene uh, between uh, Dan Freeman, main character, and some of the other black recruits. Uh, As we go along, uh, I will try to point out uh, some of the differences between the book and the film. Uh, The scene that you just heard that is not in the book, although that certainly is a major theme in the book. Uh, conflict between Freeman and other black people, other black people that he looks at as being uh, the black middle class or black bourgeois, black people that are more concerned about themselves, uh, material gain, economic gain, getting a better job, getting a a better title, a better car, bigger bigger house, uh, as opposed to trying to do something about the problem of racism, white supremacy. But I did think that that was uh, a pretty important scene. And that theme uh, is going to carry out all the way to the conclusion of the book. So that's something that I think we should uh, think about. Keep in mind, conflict with other black people. How does uh, the main character, Dan Freeman, How does he deal with his conflicts with other black people? With all that said, we will get started again. We're picking up on chapter five. Uh, This is Sam Greenlee, the spook who sat by the door. Context of white supremacy. Audio segment number one. Chapter five. Freeman saw his Dahomey queen at least once a week. She told him of the interview with the agent, but he did not want to switch whores and complicate things. Finding a mistress among black Washington society promised to be tedious, unrewarding, and a potential threat to his carefully worked out cover. His girl, Joy, came to Washington almost monthly and twice she met him in New York Midtown hotels since he would not reveal his soul whole even to her. Late one spring evening, they were lying in his bed in Washington. They had eaten a seafood dinner in a restaurant not far from his apartment just north of the junction of the Anacostia and Potomac rivers. They had been seated by the kitchen as usual. Later, they had listened to Sonny Stitt in a small jazz club just off U Street in the heart of the big Washington ghetto. They made love when they returned, but had not slept and lay silently sipping scotch and smoking, listening to the music of a late night jazz station from the transistor radio, which stood on the bed table. Joy arose to one elbow and gazed into Freeman's face. Dan, I think it's time to have a talk about the two of us. This kind of thing can't go on forever. It's time I started thinking about a home, family, security. Okay, he said. Let's get married. Dan, You know I'd love to marry you, have your children, but this part of you, 
your bitterness, your preoccupation with the race thing. It frightens me, shuts me out. I feel threatened. Freeman sat up in bed and looked at Joy in some surprise. But why should you feel threatened? Hell, the way I feel doesn't even threaten Whitey. Dan, how much longer are you going to stick with this job? You haven't had a promotion in four years and you're the only Negro officer they have. Once I prove myself, they'll recruit more Negroes. I'm certain of it. We can't all join the demonstrations. Some of us have to try quietly to make integration work. Are you going to prove yourself by taking a bunch of bored housewives on guided tours? They were on shaky ground and Freeman had to be careful. Joy knew him too well and one false move, a statement which didn't ring true and he might expose himself. He arose, walked to the dresser to light a cigarette, regarding her in the mirror as he did so. I'm hoping I can move into something else soon, something more substantial. He returned to the bed, sat on its edge, and lit a cigarette for her. If I left now, before they began hiring other Negroes, I'd always think I'd given up. It's not easy continuing with this jive job, but it's little enough sacrifice for the cause of integration. Baby, I'm sorry, but I can't sacrifice my life for a cause. I admire the way you feel, but I fought too hard to get out of the slums and you continue to identify with the slum people you left behind. I never left them behind. She placed her hand on his knee and smiled gently. Honey, whether you admit it or not, the day you left Chicago for college, you left the block and the people on it. Besides, what's wrong with wanting to live in a decent neighborhood to want the best for our kids? Who do you think pays for those nice things if not the people we ought to be helping because nobody ever gave them a chance to help themselves? Joy, have you forgotten you came off those same streets? Except for your college degree, those people are just like you. Not me, baby. I left that behind. All those hot, stinky rooms, those streets full of ghosts, junkies, whores, pimps, con men, the crooked cops, the phony, fornicating preachers, and the smells, garbage, stale sweat, stale beer, reefers, wine, and funk, that bad hand-me-down meat from the white supermarket, the price hiked up, and two minutes this side of turning a buzzard's stomach. I've had that shit and going back won't change things. Somebody 
has to try and change things. You can't change Whitey. He needs things just the way they are, like a junkie needs shit. Whitey's hooked with messing with niggers, and you want him to go cold turkey. It's not going to happen. We can be happy, Dan. We can have anything we want. Whitey won't let you be what you want to be. They put you in a pigeonhole marked nigger. How can I be happy with that? There's no way I can spin a middle class cocoon thick enough for them not to penetrate any time they choose. Even if I could, what about the rest? We have our own lives to live. I can't live in this country like an animal. I'm a man. He was restlessly pacing the room. She leaned toward him, the sheet falling away from her breasts, and he had a moment of panic looking at her, knowing that he might lose her. You don't have to live like an animal. If you really must spite whites, do it by succeeding. You can do more for your people by offering them an example to follow than by burying yourself in that building across the river. You mean hire myself out for a higher price to sit by a more impressive door? It doesn't have to be that way. You don't have to think any cooperation with whites is a sellout. There are dozens of responsible positions available. She wants me to tell her it will be all right if I make enough money. A man ought to be able to protect his woman, make her feel secure. But how long will it take for her to hate me as a man once I've traded in my balls? A showpiece spade is a showpiece spade. No matter how many times he gets his picture in the papers or how much bread he makes. Joy, I don't have to stay in Washington. I can return to Chicago. It was a bit soon for what he planned, but he had to try and keep her. Keep them both. There's an opening with the private foundation I started out with in street gang work. You're going back into social work? All the good positions for Negroes are filled now. I thought you might finish law school. Maybe go into politics. She wants that title, he thought. Mrs. Lawyer Freeman. Then Mrs. Congressman Freeman. I can go to law school. The kids only hang out at night. Stop kidding yourself. Dan, you don't want to go to law school. You never did like it, and you hate Negro lawyers. You hate all the Negro middle class because you think they don't do enough to help other Negroes. You forget something, honey. I'm middle class too, but you're still on the block in spirit. You've made your choice, and I have a right to make mine. He looked at her. 
but she dropped her head and stared morosely at the glowing tip of her cigarette, its smoke lightly veiling her face. Yes, he said softly, you have. I'm not coming to Washington anymore. I'm going to get married. He picked up his drink and took a sip. The ice had melted and it was weak, watery, and warm. The doctor or the lawyer? The doctor, she answered. He drew a deep breath, let it out slowly. Seems like a nice cat. He thought of her never being his again and thrust the thought from his mind. He listened to the radio, Miles Davis playing a ballad. It didn't help. It was from a record Joy had given him as a present. How many other things had she given to him in their years together? How much of her was a part of him? Suddenly, he was afraid she would cry. I'm sorry, Dan, but I'm not getting any younger. And it's all right, baby, he said, taking her cigarette and snuffing it out in an ashtray. I guess it had to happen one day. Look, this is our last night together. Let's say goodbye right. He reached for her. She sent him an invitation to the wedding, and he sent them a wedding present, but he did not go to Chicago for the ceremony because he thought you could carry being civilized too far. Freeman had met Joy years before in East Lansing, Michigan, when they were both students at Michigan State University. They were both slumbred, bright, quick, and tough, and considered a college degree the answer to undefined ambitions. They had much in common. They were both second-generation immigrants of refugee families from the Deep South. Their grandparents had migrated as displaced persons to the greater promises of the urban North. Joy's grandfather from Alabama to the Ford plant during the First War. Freeman's to the Chicago stockyards about the same time. Both Joy and Freeman had been born during the bleak depression years and had known the prying, arrogant social workers, the easily identifiable relief clothing, the relief beans, potatoes, rice and raisins wrapped in their forbidding brown paper bags. But poverty had done different things to them. Joy had become determined she would never be poor again. Freeman that one day to be black and poor would no longer be synonymous. She regarded his militant idealism and total identification to his race first with amusement, then irritation, and finally growing concern. Joy had no intention of becoming her black brother's keeper. Slowly, she convinced Freeman he could best use his talents to help Negroes as a lawyer dedicated to the cause of civil rights. 
he could join the legal staff of one of the established civil rights bureaucracies, one day argue precedent-making cases before the Supreme Court. She convinced him, and he began preparing himself for law school while working toward an undergraduate degree in sociology. Life was being very kind to Joy. She had never felt she would marry the man she loved, but she knew she would have to be very careful because Freeman could be a very stubborn man and the mere idea of his becoming a member of the black bourgeoisie was enough to enrage him. Joy intended not only that he become a member, but one of the leaders. She felt that she could manage this essentially unmanageable man because he loved her. The greatest potential danger was that she loved him as well, but she thought that she could control that emotion. She would have to because there was far too much at stake. Joy made an unfortunate strategic error. She insisted that Freeman attend the National Convention of the Civil Rights Organization they thought he would join. Because she had to work that summer to replenish her wardrobe for the fall, Freeman went to the convention alone. He returned bitter and disillusioned. Baby, there ain't no way I can work for those motherfuckers. They don't give a damn about any niggers except themselves, and they don't really think of themselves as niggers. You ought to hear the way they talk about people like us. Like white folks don't really have much to do with the scene. It's that lower class niggers are too stupid, lazy, dirty, and immoral. If they weren't around, all them dirty conkhead niggers with their African and down-home ways, why everything would be swinging for the swinging black bourgeois bureaucrats. Their high yellow wives, their spoiled brat kids, and their white liberal mistresses. Integration? Shit. Their definition of integration is to have their kids the only niggers in a white private school. Their wives with a well-paying job in an otherwise all-white firm and bawling white chicks looking for some African kicks. And look at what they're trying to do. When did you ever see them raising hell with a lily-white union so that people like your father can get a job they're qualified for? Or try to get those so-called building inspectors to do their jobs so people in the slums can live a little better or get involved with any kind of nigger that wasn't just like themselves. Joy was concerned, but not too much so she figured she could gradually smooth things over, but she underestimated Freeman's natural distrust and contempt for the Negro middle class. He remained adamant. Their fights about their future increased in frequency and intensity. Freeman took frequent trips with the track team and it was not until he returned unexpectedly early from the annual Pacific Coast Conference Big Ten dual meet 
which had been held in Palo Alto, that he found that Joy had been spending each weekend he had been on the road with the track team in Detroit. He drove to Detroit that evening, but she was not in when he called and he left a message with her mother. He called a former roommate who was doing graduate work at Wayne State and dropped his bags at his apartment. Freeman went to a little bar near his friend's home. He and Joy went there often because the bartender had been a potential All-American at Michigan until injured in the Army game and the owner of the bar had played football at Illinois. The bar had a small, tasteful combo, piano, bass, drums, an electric guitar, and sometimes a horn. He sat at the bar talking to the bartender, sipping a Ballantine's ale and listening to the music. He did not see Joy when she came in until he looked up and caught her reflection in the mirror behind the bar. She was sitting in a booth almost directly behind where he sat and she had not noticed him there. She was with a tall, light-skinned Negro named Frank, who had graduated from Michigan two years before. He was the Negro quota at a local medical school and his father was a prominent society doctor who made most of his money tax-free selling dope to jazz musicians and performing abortions for Negro debutantes in Detroit. Freeman watched them in the mirror and like lovers they touched one another in that way lovers think is casual. The bartender watched him closely and Freeman smiled that he intended to cool it. He was about to leave hoping that Joy would not see him when she looked up and their eyes met in the mirror. He nodded, smiled, and lifted his drink in salute toward her reflection. He stood and walked to her table and talked small talk with her and her date. Freeman had met him often in Ann Arbor and East Lansing and occasionally at parties in Detroit, but somehow the pretty boy could never remember Freeman's name. Sitting there with Joy must have been good for his memory because that night he knew exactly who Freeman was. They looked at one another in that quiet, deadly way men have when they don't like one another, while Joy chattered nervously. Freeman refused her invitation to sit down and then excused himself. He refused a drink at the bar and left, saying goodbye to his bartender friend. To Frank's credit, he really wanted to marry Joy, but his mother would not permit it because Joy was not society. She had not even come out. Several days of his mother's illness, a round trip to Europe, for a summer vacation and an American Express credit card convinced Frank that the thing between him and Joy could not work. He was very successful with the story of his tragic love in Europe and girls from Smith, Vassar, and Sarah Lawrence 
sympathized with him right up until the time they climbed into bed with him. Somehow, the story did not impress the girls from Bennington. But the others were intrigued. They didn't know Negroes had problems of that kind. They would enclose his creamy body in their arms, shut their eyes, and think of him as one of the deepest black. Had he known this, he would not have been flattered. The experience taught Joy a lesson. She would never leave her background behind her in Detroit. Her beauty, grace, manners, and education meant nothing to Detroit black society. She went to Los Angeles and became a society virgin from the Middle West. Freeman did not see her until years later when she returned to Chicago. Chapter 6 The General became genuinely fond of Freeman, and while continuing to use him as a showpiece, began to use him increasingly as an administrative assistant as well. He seldom gave Freeman tasks more difficult than those he might award a reasonably intelligent secretary, but that he requested him to do more than mop the floor was in itself progress of no little degree. Even the most bigoted of the general's friends and colleagues gave him credit for giving one of them an opportunity. It was as if the general had led the list in a drive for a popular charity. The general knew that Freeman would perform the tasks assigned him painstakingly, painfully, and accurately. Freeman, in turn, learned the trick of making an easy job look difficult a talent he shared with the vast majority of government employees in Washington, regardless of color. The general began to take him on trips into the field more often, both at home and abroad. In the United States, of course, he would have his secretary inquire as to whether a Negro in their midst might offend anyone. Only a relative number of replies in the affirmative were received, confirming the general's pride in the progress of race relations. Freeman was often used as a liaison between the general and Senator Hennington, and their mutual relations improved considerably. The senator would often invite Freeman to lunch in the Senate dining room, the senator liked to lunch on the hill with a negro at least two or three times a month and often would be stuck with one who looked white, a wasted effort in image making. Nowadays, the presence of negroes in the Senate dining room seldom evoked any dramatic response from the southern senators as had been the case early in the senator's career, thus taking much of the drama and pleasure from the adventure, but the senator's reputation 
as a flaming liberal crusader for human rights remained intact and Freeman made his small contribution making only one minor faux pas by once requesting a wine in a good French accent. The senator did not notice and Freeman made a mental note that knowing anything at all about wines was not part of his image. The senator, flattered by Freeman's feigned ignorance and naivete, told everyone that Freeman was an extremely intelligent man. Freeman moved through Washington like an invisible man. He was an occasional though not frequent guest at Georgetown cocktail parties for African diplomats. He was seldom invited to sit down dinners, not because the Georgetowners objected to eating with Negroes, they all did it several times a year, but to save him the embarrassment of which fork and spoon to use for which course. His blackout from Washington Black Society, the most snob-ridden of a snob-ridden class in America, was total. It was as he wished. While Freeman could regard whites with a certain objectivity and controlled emotion, the black middle class and their moors sent him up the wall. He dated seldom, and if there was a recurrence of the relationship, it was usually confined to bed. The Washington Negro women found much to fault Freeman in dress and cool, but little to complain about in bed. He seldom maintained a liaison more than a few months at a time. He still used the Dahomey Queen now moved up the whore's social ladder to the point where she was a high-priced call girl with a clientele consisting mainly of southern congressmen. She specialized in several sadistic variations for which she charged extra. Her relationship with Freeman had become warm and personal in spite of the fact that she knew nothing about him. She enjoyed his company and increasingly she enjoyed sleeping with him. Men would never be her scene, but she knew by now that Freeman offered no threat and made no attempt to use the power her sexual enjoyment gave him. It intrigued her and she enjoyed the relationship they had. Freeman studied the reports of the guerrilla fight in Algeria particularly as confined to urban centers. The guerrilla war against the Hucks in the Philippines, the guerrilla war against the Malayan communists, the tactics of the Viet Cong, the theories of Giap and Mao Zedong. He accompanied the general to Saigon four times as the war escalated. He stayed in the Hotel Caravelle the air conditioning so high that you had to wear a jacket or a sweater. He had cocktails on the roof terrace among the correspondents who were trying to turn the day's ration of rumors, gossip, and USIS and PIO propaganda into a meaningful dispatch. He ate in Vietnamese restaurants, several of the good French restaurants, and a Japanese restaurant 
set in a Japanese-designed garden across town from the hotel. He learned to walk slowly the other way when a crowd surged toward the scene of carnage created by a terrorist to watch if a cyclist had an egg more lethal than those laid by hens in the basket of his bike. He bought a set of Danish-style stainless ware in Japan, a Japanese camera in Hong Kong, Thai silk in Bangkok. He had suits made by Jimmy Chen in Kowloon, which he had shipped to his New York apartment. He became adept with chopsticks and learned to make love in several languages. He found that in Asia he was not as hip in bed as he had imagined and took a postgraduate course in sex, oriental style. He was enjoying the job, its prerogatives, and putting on so many white people, but the general saved him from any addiction in that direction. They were driving back to Langley from the capital when the general decided to take his assistant to lunch. He almost requested that the driver stop at his club. Although the club had no colored members, it was no oddity to see dark faces there several times a year. Only recently, there had been a Nobel Prize winner, an operatic star, a federal judge, and the president of Howard University. But Freeman might be uncomfortable in the impressive surroundings of the club. The general ordered the driver to take them to a good moderately priced steakhouse instead. They were ushered in and taken to an excellent table. It was the first time in several visits that Freeman had not been seated by the toilet or kitchen. Freeman ordered a martini on the rocks, the general bourbon, and branch water while they awaited their steaks. Dan, I want to say how pleased I am at the way you fitted in to the agency. To be frank, I had my reservations at first, but they've been completely eliminated by your performance. If more of your people were like you, there would be much less difficulty. The general took a sip of his drink, rolled it on his tongue a moment before swallowing, then made a tent of his fingers. Honest sweat and toil. Pull yourself up by the bootstraps like the immigrants. These demonstrations and sit-ins stir up needless emotion. Your people must demonstrate a respect for law and order. Earn the respect and affection of whites. Take yourself as an example. A fine natural athlete? No denying you people are great athletes. Yes, said Freeman, and we can sing and dance too. Right, in the fields of sports and entertainment, you're unsurpassed. But you must admit there's still a social and cultural gap to be closed. The Africans did develop centuries later than the Europeans, you know? As I've said, you're a fine athlete, but I think you'd have to admit your intellectual shortcomings. It will take generations, Dan. It's not a question of prejudice, 
but rather one of evolution. Their stakes arrived and Freeman fought to keep his down. He had no appetite now and he willed his hands not to tremble. He had not ordered wine because he thought the Spartan general might consider it an affectation. He sipped the cool Carlsberg, taking a deep breath as he replaced the glass. He forced himself to look at the general, masking his seething emotions. He surprised himself by summoning a smile. I'm encouraged after knowing you, Dan. You're a credit to your race. Perhaps your generation will achieve more by example than your civil rights leaders can hope to accomplish through turmoil and agitation. Somehow, Freeman got through the meal. He excused himself as the general ate his dessert of apple pie a la mode and was violently ill in the toilet. He washed his face and saw how pale he had become in the washroom mirror, but he didn't think anyone as colorblind as the general would notice. The general allowed Freeman to leave the office early that day and he reached his apartment ahead of rush hour traffic. He mixed a stiff scotch and lay sipping it in a very hot tub while listening to Diana Washington. Well into his second drink, he watched the six o'clock news. The big mounted cops charging the children with cattle prods, the police dogs, and fire hoses. One long shot of a little girl bowled over by the battering stream of water and spun along in the gutter like a bowling pin. The freedom songs and praying, all the wasted, martyred faith and courage of a people who wouldn't quit. It had to be channeled where it would be most effective, where it might make Whitey back off. It was time to stop procrastinating, time to do what he had to do. He had all the training he needed. He walked into his bedroom, made a list of social welfare agencies in Chicago, and wrote letters of inquiry concerning job openings. He discovered his hands had stopped trembling and that he was calmer than in years. He requested an appointment with the general the next day. Freeman told him he had been profoundly impressed by the general's talk at lunch the day before. He felt he could make a greater contribution to his people by returning to Chicago and working among them and the general had shown him the way. The general reluctantly agreed that perhaps following his own advice might indeed be the best thing for Freeman to do. The general walked Freeman to the door of his office while heartily booming cliches concerning Freeman's grand sense of duty. He closed the door behind Freeman, frowned briefly, walked to his desk and phoned his director of training and personnel informing him that they would need another Negro sometime within the next year. He hung up and returned to the direction of the Cold War. Chapter 7 Freeman 
left the director's office and walked directly to the elevator, nodding briefly at the director's secretary on the way out. He pressed the button calling the elevator to his floor and inspected the attache case he had been presented as his going away present. It was serviceably large of saddle stitched leather with brass fittings. It contained the few things he had cleared from his desk in the office which had been his for years in the suite of offices behind the armed guards and door marked simply director. The elevator arrived and he rode it down. Walk. He had known that it would not be awaiting him at the steps and he showed no surprise, no anger. He had waited many years for what he had to do and a few minutes more for a car was no problem. It might take him many more years to do what he had planned for so long and an impatient man he had carefully schooled himself in patience. He stood at the door looking out into the huge courtyard of the building and out toward the trees that screened the building from the Potomac River toward the city of Washington hidden by the trees. The courtyard was bright with the Virginia spring sunshine unveiled by factory fallout. He could not hear the birds behind the big glass doors of the entranceway, but he knew that they would be singing in the trees that lined the river. He had often brought his lunch to eat among the trees there, listening to the birds, watching the slow current of the river, sitting among the pines and sycamore, recalling the smells and sounds of summers spent in a Boy Scout camp in Michigan. A city boy from Chicago, he had never lost his awe and love of the woods, their sights and sounds. The building squatted vast and ugly, a marble and granite conglomeration of the worst of neoclassical and government modern architecture, an ugly abscess created by bulldozers and billions in the midst of the once beautiful North Virginia woods. A cancerous abscess, he thought, sending out its tendrils of infection tens of thousands of miles. He stepped through the door into the sunshine and listened to the sounds from the woods, placing the case at his feet. He was dressed in quiet, bad taste, his suit a bit too light, his cuffs a bit too deep, lapels a bit too wide, shoulders a shade too padded, tie too broad, trousers too wide at the knee and ankle, socks too short. He wore large airplane type sunglasses, his hair was closely cropped, and there was a thin surrounding of gold around a front tooth. His suit was a bit too cheap, and his wristwatch of 18 karat gold a bit too expensive. He walked with a gangling shuffle, his head tilted slightly toward one shoulder, and there was always a smile on his face. Even when alone in the building in which he worked, broadening and flashing the thin gold when people approached, 
he was very well liked and would be missed. Waiting for the director's car, he never once glanced back at the building in which he had spent a great part of the last five years of his life. The black Cadillac limousine swung into the drive and stopped just ahead of where Freeman stood. The Negro chauffeur made no effort to get out to open the door. Freeman knew that he wouldn't open the door for him and patiently walked to the car, opened the door for himself, and climbed into the air-conditioned interior. The driver started moving before Freeman was seated, throwing him awkwardly into the far corner of the rear seat. Smiling gently, Freeman disentangled himself and leaned back into the foam rubber cushions, looking out at the Potomac River as they sped towards Washington through the bulletproof glass. You really going through with it? You really quitting? Yes, said Freeman. And they ain't pushing you out. I thought so at first, but they ain't pushing you out. I didn't think cats like you ever quit a scene like you got. I seen a lot like you in Washington, but I never knew one to quit on his own. Your kind love it here. You don't even quit for more money someplace else. It just don't make sense. You really going back to that job you had, like they say? Working with street gangs in Chicago? Yes, but this time I'll be in charge of the program. I should have known. A title. A goddamn title. The only damn thing you cats dig more than money. Special assistant to the director wasn't enough. Now you're going to be a director yourself. Or did they think up something more fancy? The driver snorted in disgust. Freeman said nothing and they proceeded along the riverside road in silence. They moved briefly through Arlington and then onto the drive and past the cemetery, the big statue of the Marines raising the flag on their right. They went across the bridge that passed the pompous Lincoln Memorial, the phallic Washington Monument at the end of the reflection pool, and just short of the next bridge, the Jefferson Memorial. The cherry trees were in bloom, a blaze of pink against the green, the blue sky above, with big, fat, cumulus clouds floating marshmallow-like against the bright blue sky. They turned right on Pennsylvania Avenue and drove to the White House, where the guard waved the car into the drive. In front of the White House, the driver again did not bother with the door, and Freeman let himself out and walked into the office annex. He was met at the door by a pudgy, red-faced man with nervous mannerisms. Dan, how are you? Right on time. Right on time. We'll be going in to see the president in. He looked at his watch and then glanced up at the clock on the wall behind the desk of the secretary. Exactly ten minutes. Now, we go in between the Boy Scout delegation from East Bengal and just before his monthly tea with some of the congressmen's wives. Split-second timing around here. You know, 
and you know how he is if there is a foul up. We have four minutes with him and then it's finished. He'll give you a little present, say a few words, and then you pose for pictures. Should you get some play in the Chicago press, which won't do you any harm and I'll send copies to you in Chicago next week. I don't know what his present will be. He's pretty cagey about that kind of thing, but you know what kind of response to give. Little surprise, gratitude, thanks, and tell him how sorry you are to be leaving the team. But I don't have to coach you, Dan. You know what to do. Hey, boy. You know, we're all going to miss you around here. Remember that time he gave a rebel yell in the Taj Mahal and you smoothed things over with the Indian press? We haven't forgotten that boy around here not a little bit. You were always in there swinging in the clutch. Yeah, sorry to see you go. Keep in touch now, you hear? Make yourself to home. I gotta go check on those congressmen's wives. Be right back and then we can go in. Freeman sat in a big leather armchair and looked at the big four-color portrait of the president on the wood-paneled wall behind the secretary. In a few minutes, the red-faced man returned. All right, let's go now. We stand outside his office until the Boy Scouts come out. Then we go right in. You know the drill. They waited at the door until the Scouts left beaming each holding a multi-purpose jackknife. They entered the office of the president. The president was seated in his rocking chair. His aide bent over and whispered in his ear as Freeman approached. The president arose and extended a hand, thrusting his own quickly far up toward Freeman's thumb so that it couldn't be squeezed, a trick learned from countless campaigns and handshakes. Well, foreman, mighty glad to see you again. Sit down. He had heard Freeman's name incorrectly. The aide looked at Freeman in a moment of panic. Freeman ignored his misspoken name and the aide relaxed in gratitude. Well now, son, they tell me you're leaving us. Sure we can't get you to change your mind? The general now tell me he's mighty sorry to see you go. Says you do a good job over there by the river, and the general doesn't hand out praise very easy, you know. Yes, sir, I know, and I'm flattered that he wants me to stay. But I'm afraid I have to leave. I've given it a great deal of thought and conscious calls. You see, I'll be going right back where I grew up to try and use my education to help kids who are like I used to be. Well, foreman, that's a right fine attitude. But don't you think you might be making a bigger contribution for those very people here in Washington? Offer some inspiration for them to achieve, to emulate you. You know, local boy makes good. That's a point well taken, Mr. President. But I'd rather make my efforts in a more personal way. My small contribution to our great society. Well now, that's good. Very good. We could use you around here, maybe speech writing. 
I like that. A small contribution to our great society. The president turned to his aide. Put that down, Smitty. Want to see it in my next speech. He squinted and gazed out into space. As your president, it is my humble pleasure to be able to make a small contribution to our great society. Got that, Smitty? We could use more of your idealism around here, Foreman. I certainly wish you the best of luck. I spoke to your mayor last week, and they plan to do more in that area. I'm sure he could find room for you in his new commission. Well, Mr. President, I already have a position with a private social welfare agency, one I worked for before I came into the government. Well now, Foreman, never underestimate the good the government does for the people, even though I am a firm believer in private enterprise, as you know. Yes, sir. I recognize the great contributions the government has made toward the lives of the individual citizen and that it is at the head of the war on poverty. But there have to be increased efforts by private agencies and individuals. You're right, of course. We can't have people dependent on the government to take care of all their problems. Now, can we? No, sir. And I always ask not what my country can do for me, but what I can do for my country. The president's smile tightened. His aide hastily thrust a package into his hand. Foreman, here's a little memento I'd like to let you have. A little token of my appreciation of your efforts in your country's behalf. Freeman opened the package. It was a multi-purpose pocket knife identical to those handed to the East Bengali Boy Scouts. Freeman wondered if the congressman's wives would find pocket knives useful. He smiled his thanks. You remember the time we were on that tour of the East and all that fuss they made because I gave a little old rebel yell in the Taj Mahal? Well, you sure handled those Indian newsmen well, but I never could understand why they were so riled. Well, sir, it's a tune, you know? It was a little like someone being disrespectful in the Alamo. Well, now that you put it that way, but I meant no disrespect. Oh, yes, sir. I told them that. His aide gave him a signal and the president rose and grasped Freeman's hand. Down my way, when you give a man a sharp instrument as a present, you have to give him something in return so that the friendship isn't broken. Yes, sir. Here you are. Freeman slid off his tie clasp and gave it to the president. There was a cold silence the president's grin frozen on his face. His aide hurried Freeman to the door. Recovering, the president called out, Now, if you get down my way, you stop in to see me. You hear? The president frowned down at the tie clasp in his big hand. It was in the shape of a PT boat.
Freeman walked out into the bright spring sunshine, paused on the steps of the White House, and looked out at the traffic on Pennsylvania Avenue. He walked to the side of the building to the parking lot. The chauffeur was leaning against the fender of the shiny black Cadillac, smoking a cigarette. He looked up at Freeman. Well, big time. The man say you can have the car as long as you want it today. Where you want to go? You can go back to the office. I have a bag in the hotel where the airport limousine leaves for National. I'll walk from here. The driver looked at Freeman and flipped the butt at him. It landed just short of the toe of his shoe. Freeman looked at the still smoking cigarette butt. Then he looked up at the driver. Nigger, he said. If you had hit me with that butt, it would have been your black ass. The driver stiffened and moved forward from the fender of the car. Come on, said Freeman. You've been wanting some of me for years now. Let's get it on. I'll lay your black ass on the White House steps. You'd like that, wouldn't you? You out of a job now and you get big and bad in front of the White House. No, I ain't going to fight you here. You come down to U Street and I'll kill you. You couldn't kill me on the best day you ever had. Now you can drive me. Let's go. The driver started around the hood of the car to the driver's seat. Freeman stood at the door and waited until he had reached the other side. Nigger, open my door. They stood looking at one another across the long, low top of the car, their elongated reflections almost touching. The driver walked slowly back around the car and opened the door. Freeman got into the back seat. He told him the name of the hotel where he had been staying since the Packers had shipped his effects to his new apartment in Chicago the weekend before. They stopped at the entrance and Freeman passed the check for his bag to the driver. He got out, then returned with the bag without a word. They rode to National Airport in silence. When they arrived at the terminal, Freeman got out and handed the driver his plane ticket. Park the car and check my bag through. Bring the ticket to me in the bar upstairs. He walked into the terminal and upstairs to the bar and ordered a Carlsberg. He sipped the cold brew until the driver returned. Here's your ticket, big time. One day, I'm going to kill you. Go polish the car, boy. You won't be killing me anytime. The driver stood looking at Freeman's reflection in the mirror to the rear of the bar. Freeman, sipping his beer coolly, returned his stare. The driver frowned in curiosity. He had never seen that expression in the five years Freeman had been with the agency. Finally, he turned without another word and left the bar. That was stupid, Freeman thought. 
Five years cooling it, and when I blew it, it had to be him. Hell, we could probably be pool-shooting buddies, tasting a bit and chasing chicks. But there was no other way. The cover had to be complete. No holes anywhere. It had to be that way, and now he was ready. Or was he? Had his mask become him? He would find out soon now. Had he really put them on, or had he been putting himself on for half a decade? Although trained for it, he had never been allowed to be a functioning agent. But then, that was not why he had been recruited. They had never felt he had either the guts or intelligence to function in the field, and he had reinforced their thoughts on that score. He smiled to himself. He had conned them all, and in his own way had been the best of the spooks, and they might never know it. For five years, he had been the CIA nigger, and his job had been to sit by the door. Context of white supremacy. That would be our first audio segment, Mr. Sam Greenlee, the spook who sat by the door. We will start the second audio segment on Chapter 8. Chapter 8. Uh, if you have commentary on the first section of reading that we did today, the number to dial is 641 715 the code is 564-943-POUND. Press star 6 if you would like to participate. That number again, 641-715-3640. The code, 564-943-POUND. Press star 6 if you would like to participate. Uh, if you would like to join in the conversation, but you do not want to use your phone, you can use the free Vope line. It works anywhere in the world. It is free. It's linked at Black Talk Radio Network. Uh, if you need the address, it is tiny, T-I-N-Y dot C-C forward slash one race. And that is the number one. The address again, tiny, T-I-N-Y cc forward slash one race and that is the number one when you put in that address click the link on the left of the page it says uh, vote line click that it will open a small window on your screen on the top line it is a drop down menu select the number that I just gave out that number again is six four one seven one five three six four zero the next line it will ask for the code the code I just gave out is five six four nine four three the final line it will ask for a name you can use your real name a nickname you can press random keys whatever you are comfortable with once you get all that information entered click the green button at the bottom to 
call the program. Uh, when you do so, you should be able to hear the live broadcast. It is the same procedure. If you would like to participate, you will see the dial pad on your screen. Press star six. Uh, when you do so, you should hear the audio prompt. Press the number one, and we will get you on the line. Grand to have folks' uh, participation. If people have uh, any thoughts on the significance, uh, I think last week I tried to point out a few points of deviation in terms of things that are in the book that did not make it to the film and vice versa. Uh, the scene where Dan Freeman gets into the uh, kind of verbal conflict with some of the other black recruits. Uh, it would have been in the section of the book last week, but that scene was not in the book. It was in the movie, but it was not in the book where they get into the spat. Uh, they're calling each other Uncle Tom's, and they're going to go outside to fight because Dan Freeman is not going with them into D.C. Uh, to party down and what have you. If you all have any thoughts on that scene, as I said, I think that's significant and that that conflict with other black people is going to play out throughout the book. I think we heard quite a bit of that even this week. Uh, folks have commentary they would like to share. Feel free to chime in. Uh, all the folks who have a hand up uh, thus far, uh, you are on the line. This is also not a spectator program, so if you are listening in, please share your thoughts, observations on the tech, text. Uh, everyone who dialed in with a hand up thus far, your line should be open. I will add other hands as I see them. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Hi. Um, I was... Uh I was interested while I was uh, listening to and, and reading along with the story about the, the character Joy. Uh, Joy has an interesting, uh, it, it, it's an interesting character because it shows you how racism and white supremacy confuses us in regards to uh, not racism being the problem, but class and economic status being the problem. She She thinks and she's trying to portray this to to Dan that, you know, if he, you know, becomes a lawyer and works with civil rights people and blah, blah, this, blah, blah, that, that, you know, he can get further ahead. And it, it, it's academic to what, you know, what we're going through now where we think that, you know, getting more economic status and, you know, class, you know, uh, it, it's not about race, it's about class and classism and, and how, you know, most white supremacists will tell you that, you know, that, that race is not the problem. And this confusion also, uh, going, going back to the outline of the story, you know, affects the relationship between, you know, uh, uh, black men and black women. Because, you know, obviously uh, Dan and Joy couldn't get together because of the fact that they, they weren't on the same page on how they can, uh, you know, how they can live together. Because she has this vision, she has this uh, false vision of, of how life should be, and Dan has another agenda. On, on how to, uh, you know, how to live in a society of racism and white supremacy. So it, 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 it affected the relationship because they never got together. And it, uh, you know, it's, it's a startling, it's a startling reality when you look at that character and examine, uh, the character of Joy and how, uh, you know, her way of thinking of, of our society, you know, is, is so distorted. Uh, now, she did have one, you know, clear moment where, you know, she did say that Whitey will never change. And that's the only truth that she, you know, that she had uh, that she had said, because, you know, white people as a collective won't change. They will not give up power and they will they will continue to fight for, you know, 
uh, the current society of racism and white supremacy. So I thought it was a very, very interesting, uh, very interesting character and the reflection that it has with, you know, most most uh, victims of, uh, of of racism out here and how they uh, how they view the world and how their plans are for the future is. So uh, that's all I want to say right now. I'll mute my line. Appreciate that. Joy's character is pretty similar to the movie. One thing I did want to uh, get in on this program, uh, that conjunction, and uh, I have concluded uh, racism is white supremacy. White supremacy is racism. Uh, I think a lot of times people insert that conjunction as though these are two separate things, uh, which I think is very important. Uh, Racism is white supremacy. White supremacy is racism. Uh, I don't even put a conjunction in between the two. Racism, white supremacy, that's uh, just something I think is very important because a lot of people do not think of those two as being equivalent. They think of them as being two separate concepts, uh, which I submit is not the case at all. The only functional form of racism being white supremacy. Uh, Other callers, other folks uh, on the line who have a hand up, do you all have commentary you wanted to share? Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Uh, greetings to you, Gus, um, and to the callers and the listeners. Uh, I wanted to say first, I know that you said you uh, do not like uh, reading the text or reading books in general as far as do- being the narrator, but I must say you're doing an exceptional job. Um, I think uh, just the way that you uh, go about reading it and your uh, inflection and your tone is awesome. I, uh, I think it's um, just as good as some of the other uh, so-called professional narrators that we've heard before. So I just wanted to give you that, that uh, shout-out in regards to that. Um, I also wanted to touch base uh, on the character of Joy that the previous caller brought up. I found her to be very fascinating. I found myself uh, in similar <laughs> conversations with my wife, especially earlier in our relationship. Um, now that she's uh, getting a better understanding, even though she's still uh, somewhat confused, uh, our conversations have developed uh, a lot more and in a very a much more positive direction. Um, it just reminds me of a few years back, i say maybe around the time around 2007, maybe yeah, around 2007, I had um, gone to a Yoruba priest for a reading and they had brought up in the reading that I needed to calm down my revolutionary spirit, which was very funny because my wife immediately chimed in. And um, she just said, well, I didn't really sign up for this when we got together. I didn't sign up to, you know, really get deep into this sort of stuff. So it just reminded me of that, um, to, to her character, and just the, the the type of conversation that they had, uh, like the previous caller said, um, her confusion. Um, and the one thing she did understand was that white people would never change. So I found that uh, fascinating as well. And again, it's sad because this is the way the system is designed as far as um racism, white supremacy, um, in regards to the destruction of black relationships between uh, black males and females. So I just found that to be telling to, um, excuse me, dive a little bit further into the text. On page uh, 52, Mr. Greenlee wrote, uh, Whitey won't let you be what you want to be. They put you in a pigeonhole, marked nigger. How can I be happy that way? There's no way I can spin a middle-class cocoon thick enough for them not to penetrate any time they choose. Even if I could, what about the rest? And I found that interesting because it just reminded me of Millie Fuller Jr. and um, the genius of 
his United Independent Compensatory Code System concept, where he discusses that there's no place on earth that you can run to escape white supremacy. And I just found that to be a, a nice, uh, a nice exposition of his understanding of the fact that you cannot escape white supremacy. You can't build, like you said, a middle-class cocoon thick enough that, that they cannot get through or go anywhere else that they can't get to if they want to get at you. So I just found that to be a very important paragraph. Um, a few paragraphs down, uh, he writes, uh, she wants me to tell her it would be all right if I make enough money. A man ought to be able to protect his woman, make her feel secure. But how long will it take for her to hate me as a man? Once I've traded my traded in my balls, a showpiece spade is a showpiece spade. No matter how many times he gets his picture in the paper or how much bread he makes, found that to be another all to uh, Neely Fuller Jr.'s genius again. Um, when he used the term showcase spade, I just thought about you know showcase black people, um, and uh, Mr. Greenley was just incredibly brilliant with the way he was able to express the uh, the black psyche under under pressure in the way that we are. And um, I think that the Freeman character is extremely brilliant in just the way that he understands the way things work and his conviction um, at fighting the system. Kind of reminds me of how you are with this program as far as his conviction, and I thought that was awesome. Um, also, just the whole idea he talks about um, that a man ought to be able to protect his woman and make him feel secure. And that's something that none of us as a black male in the system of white supremacy are adequately able to do. Um, so again, I just think that just his understanding of his place in the hierarchy of racism, white supremacy as a black male, um, his understanding of his inability to make her feel secure and protect her. And the idea of the fact that, um, even though she viewed him as a, a somewhat strong black male in her mind, um, he understood that the way that she was thinking could eventually lead her down the road to to hate him once he's uh, been put in enough emasculating situations, whether it's taking his job or other situations to really um, castrate him as a male and how that can turn into something uh, that creates extreme enmity between black males and females. I've seen that throughout my entire life. Um, you know, I've had some, even some issues myself as a black male in my own marriage before we got married where things had happened that was similar to that as far as just, um, us having experiences or me having experiences where I was mistreated severely and she had to, you know, deal with these things, whether it was being out of work for a certain amount of time, all of these things creates immense pressure in black relationships. So I'm thankful that we've been able to successfully navigate that for now 22 years. So I really feel um, thankful about that. The next, uh, next uh, thing I wanted to touch on was on page 63. Um, Mr. Greenley writes, uh, Honest sweat and toil. Pull yourself up by the boot straps, excuse me, like the immigrants. These demonstrations and sit-ins stir up needless emotion. Your people must demonstrate a respect for law and order. Earn the respect and affections of whites. Take yourself as an example. A fine natural athlete. No denying you people are great athletes. Wow. This, to me, was an, a serious Dr. Welsing moment. Um just in the sense that when he talks about pulling himself up by the bootstraps like the immigrants and um, when he goes to the extreme of saying your people demonstrated respect for law and order, Donald Trump, um, and earn the respect and affection of whites, which reminds me of Dr. Wilson when she talks about in the, in the Bible where white people talk about slave, obey your master, um, it's, I immediately like, so, had a vision of her face when that paragraph was, uh, was read by you earlier. And um, a couple paragraphs later, he writes, 
as I said, you're a fine athlete, but I think you'd have to admit your intellectual shortcomings. It will take generations there. It's not a question of prejudice, but rather one of evolution. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. Um, the whole concept of black people only being good for uh, physicality and athletic performance um, to, to the delight of white people in whatever form or fashion, whether it's Jack Johnson, you know, having to brutalize a, a group of other black males just to make enough money to feed his family or, uh, you know, Jackie Joyner running a race or anyone else. Um, I found that interesting. And then when he goes to the point of obfuscating to uh, take your, uh, your uh, term, uh, it will take generations, Then It's not a question of prejudice, but one of evolution. They're obfuscating the fact that uh, white supremacy is everything. And that's what drives exactly what's happened to us and what happened to Dan to put him in the position that he was in to end up where he was in the first place. And then they try to uh, belittle the black mind by saying, again, that it's a question of evolution as if we're uh, deficient. And I just find it telling because uh, Sam Greenlee has an innate understanding of the fact that uh, white people are trying to normalize their abnormal, their abnormality in the sense that they're melanin deficient, they are not genetically superior to anyone, but these are the things they try to uh, inculcate within us as people that we tend to wear on such deep sub psych psychological subconscious levels that they play out in the ways that we relate to both white people and the ways that we re relate to one another as, uh, as black people. Um, thank you very much for taking my call, and I'll mute my line. Thank you. Appreciate that. Appreciate that. Uh, any other folks that we have not heard from, if you all had commentary you wanted to share, should be with us. May I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Hello. Calling from the 712. I took a couple notes. I didn't get to get in on the first session, so I'm glad I get to say something today about the second. And um, let me see here. Oh, the first thing I got off of it, and, you know, I came in kind of at the end of this reading, too. But when I first came in, uh, sounds like a white person said, remember when I gave the rebel yell at the Taj Mahal and... Um, if I got the exchange right, a black person said, oh, yeah, I remember that. And he was like, the white guy said, yeah, you know, those reporters, they was acting a fool, but I'm glad you handled them. And he was like, why was they so mad anyway? And then I guess the, the other person told him, I don't know if it was, he was talking to a black guy or not, but he told him why. And he gave a, a descriptor as far as um, saying something at the Alamo or something. And that just made me think of how, you know, white people like to get into their clowning mode, and they do that a lot. So he was just just clowning, wondering, why why would you holler at the Taj Mahal like that? Why wouldn't you know that was disrespectful? Well, you did know it was disrespectful because it's in you to do stuff like that. Just they do a lot of yelling, you know. When it's quiet, it could be peaceful, and then here they come hollering. So I took a note of that, and. I took a note that they trained him as an agent, so now he's he's bottled up. He want to get his his agent training off, but they got there and made him basically a doorman, and they do that a lot with 
but a lot of us will get training and then we'll end up, you know, being a janitor or something. And um, with the classism with uh, Joy, that made me think of um, how it how it could have been. I probably need to do some more reading, but when it was slavery and when it was some black people that was out of slavery and then it was they had a group of black people that wasn't and I was just thinking how how would how did they think they were ever safe? Like at any time you could be put back in slavery. So you should have been one of the ones that was fighting really hard to end it. And Joy should be a person that's fighting really hard to like in the oppression as she sees, I know she knows just because she goes to university and does all this, that she's still going to be subjugated like everyone else. So that's just the, um, the confusion they have a lot of us under a lot of people out here right now that are on that. And, um, I just didn't understand where all the hate was coming from with the driver. I feel like it was, just our in our training just to be hateful to each other like that you know you you're coming up and you know I'm supposed to not like you and it's like it's in our training just to be acting like that towards each other and that's that's sad that's one of the sad part parts of it and um okay that's uh, looks like that's all the notes I took so yeah I'm glad we I'm glad you picked this book uh, look good choice good choice not meet my line. Right on, right on. Thanks for that. Um, anybody else that uh, we have not heard from have commentary? Yes, sir. Good evening, guys. Good evening, Mr. All. I'm Smith in New York. Um, have a few points I want to make. Uh, first, I wanted to go over. I think uh, Ross kind of touched on this section, but. Um, Honest on 63, honest sweat and toil. Put yourself up out of bootstraps like immigrants. These demonstrations and sitting stir up needless emotion. Your people must demonstrate a respect for the law and order. Earn the respect and affection of whites. Take yourself, for example, a fine natural athlete. No denying your people are great athletes. Yes, said Freeman, and we can sing and dance too. Right. In the fields of sports and entertainment, you're an See, he threw that in there. Um, that little year, we could sing it there too, and the white man didn't even pick up on it. Um, but what I wanted to say, um, as you go on to read, but you must admit that there's still some social and cultural gaps to be closed. The Africans didn't develop centuries later than the Europeans, you know? Now, I would like to say that I think most. More black people believe that last statement than white people. Um, and if white people really believe that, they wouldn't set up a whole system of racism and white supremacy. Um, they know that they did not um, develop until centuries after the Africans, and they've um, developed a system to catch up. Um, and I think that um, there's a lot of black people that believe that. And I wanted to um, also on um, second last minutes, you do a great job beating the text us. Um, uh, but for that very last section, I would have loved to have a white reader um, go into the, you know, I'll kill you, nigga, you know, <laughs> you know, with these uh, arguing with the uh, so far. And um, other than that, um, 
you know, everything is copacetic. I haven't talked to my wife yet. Fascinating. Very. Um, uh, if other folks have uh, observations, things they would like to share, uh, please don't wait till the last minute. Uh, get your hand up if you have uh, comments you want to get in. We have about hmm, 30 minutes or so before we get to uh, the second audio segment. Uh, some of the things uh, that stood out uh, with regards to the class thing, that's going to be a huge motif for the duration of the book. So people can, everything that you all have pointed out, phenomenal observations with regards to Joy and some of her comments, what she wants, her kind of worldview and what she wants um, things to be like, what she would like to accomplish. Just kind of keep that in mind because you're going to hear a lot of that as the book proceeds, not just from Joy, but other characters are going to pitch in on this as we continue. Um, but I just to touch on that, that is very, very prevalent. Um, that this is a class issue. We have had guests who have come on this program repeatedly who have laid that out. It even reminded me of uh, Leonita McLean, A Foot in Each World, where she talks about that, where this is a class thing. Um, Kanye West says that all the time. It is not about racism. It's about class. Uh, even the great Mumia Abu-Jamal uh, recently, uh, when he was on Democracy Now! just a few weeks back, said the exact same thing, that it is not, as W.E.B. Dubois said, uh, that it is no longer about the color line, that it is about the class line. Uh, and I, the only thing that I can say is that that is uh, the success of white supremacy uh, and having us confused uh, about what the dominant issue is. I think Dr. Cambon, I think he states it best that frequently racists, they use economics as camouflage to the ultimate and primary objective, which is always white supremacy racism. Uh, and frequently they just find ways, lots of ways to make money practicing racism, white supremacy. Uh, but Back to specific things uh, in the text. Uh, some of the things that I highlighted from this week. I thought uh, Roz did a great job with the passage about trading in uh, your balls, that you're going to be emasculated uh, in some way, shape, form uh, if you are doing things, if you're not working against the system of racism, white supremacy, you're just trying to get the most comfortable spot that you can, uh, that you are going to be used, you are going to be uh, just thoroughly, uh, even more compromised, all of us are, all of us support the system, but if you're not actively working against it, as Freeman is trying to do, uh, that it's very likely that you are going to be dissatisfied with yourself, uh, and that other people seeing you do those things are probably going to be dissatisfied with you too, and not making an effort uh, to fight against this system, and just how that plays out in terms of our relationships, black male, black female relationships. Uh, I thought on, I don't know if my pages will correspond, because I think there have been a few uh, different editions, publications of this book, so uh, for me, it would be bottom of page 56 over to page uh, 57, the portion uh, where they say that both Joy and Freeman had been born during the bleak depression years and had known the prying, arrogant social workers, the easily identifiable relief clothing, the relief beans, potatoes, rice, and raisins wrapped in their forbidding brown paper bags that reminded me of Minister Malcolm X. Uh, he talked about that same era growing up uh, in those depression, e uh, those depression years and the damage that racist social workers, particularly white women did in invading uh, and just 
devastating uh, attempted black families and parceling out children. I just got a clear vision of uh, what Minister Malcolm talked about in his autobiography since we just finished uh, Blood Brothers. Um, I thought the passage just just follows the section I just read uh, where Joy regarded his militant talking about Freeman, his uh, militant idealism, total identification to his race, first with amusement then irritation and finally growing concern. Joey had no intention of becoming her black brother's keeper. I have heard that expressed in a myriad of different ways. And I'm sure a lot of folks listening to this program can relate uh, when other victims of racism, other black people, when they hear you talking about this, I know uh, one of our uh, listeners, former guests, uh, Blacka uh, down in Atlanta, Georgia, where he said he was trying to bring up some of these issues on the job and the black people told him, you have to excuse my language. I repeat what I was told. Uh, He said that his black colleagues, they told him, we are not interested in hearing any of that black shit. (laughs) <laughs> when he would bring up a try and talk about racism, that is extra super common. And that also, this is going to be one of the major themes that is going to play out. Uh, and again, I think this just reflects the way that we have been groomed, abused, brain trashed, uh, just people that are expressing black self-respect and saying that this is a problem that we, tr- we should try to solve. And I am concerned about how uh, all black people are treated. It's beyond just, you know, whatever individual creature comforts I can get for myself that, oh, my God, I don't want to hear any of that. And that is ridiculous. And let's just move on from that. And I'm not interested. That is very, very common. And just once again, shows the success of white supremacy. Um, let's see. The views that Freeman articulates uh, about other black people. I guess these are black lawyers. He calls them the black middle class of the black bourgeoisie. Where he says you ought to hear the way they talk about people like us, like white folks don't really have much to do with the scene. It's that lower class niggers are too stupid, lazy, dirty, and immoral. If they run around all them dirty conk head niggers and their African and down home ways, why everything would be swinging for the swinging black bourgeoisie bureaucrats, their high yellow wives, their spoiled brat kids their white liberal mistresses we have a cowbell that sexual thing seems to be a running theme in the book very early on as well uh but again i just i think that shows the success of white supremacy where it is not the fault of whites and i think you even hear a lot of that today it is not their fault it is our fault if we just pulled our pants up i think you hear uh now i think the way that that is uh succinctly expressed is respectability politics. I think that's a word that people a lot of times will use uh, that uh, if black people had more personal responsibility, uh, if we didn't, you know, just let our kids listen to let our black children listen to Beyonce and Lil Wayne all day. uh, If we pulled our pants up, if we got a job, if we didn't do drugs, uh, if we worked hard, if we didn't blame white people or everything, then we could solve some of our problems where that is very, very prominent. Uh, and I would even submit that for a lot of black people who are in these positions, who have these views, they have probably had to ingest a lot of that racist rhetoric to get to those positions uh, that they frequently, I am sure, uh, have had to appease whites to hire them or promote them uh, or to advance their career. They have had to articulate uh, explicitly and or implicitly those type of views about other black people to get those positions. And even doing all that, you can still have your balls taken, as Freeman stated earlier. Uh, Moving forward, uh, for me... 
uh, on page bottom of page 60 where Freeman talks about feigning uh, ignorance. Uh, that is something that Gus T. Renegade does and uh, encourages, promotes that other non-white people. Uh, I think a lot of times because in the system it's just promoted constantly that black people are stupid, black people are ignorant, we don't know anything, we've never known anything or, or done anything to evidence any intellect. Uh, we want to show how much we know, how much we've learned. Uh, and I just have not seen where that works out to our benefit in, in most cases. Uh, I am very much okay with white people thinking, oh, that Gus is just the dumbest nigra in the history of life. Having no problem with that at all. Sometimes it can make it easier for you to get things done, uh, move, do whatever you need to do uh, when you are not trying to prove to a racist how smart you are. Um, moving forward, and particularly in workplace situations, I am a big advocate of that. Uh, and just, I, I don't know anything. I'm just moving along, doing what I'm trying to do. Um, let's see. I thought the passage where he said, uh, where he was kind of rejected by other black people in Washington, D.C., that that was kind of what he wanted. Uh, he said it was as he wished, while Freeman could regard whites with a certain objectivity and controlled emotion with black middle class and their moors, the black middle class and their moors sent him up the wall. That, I thought, was especially important, given the scene that we heard at the end where he's about to fight this black driver. At the end, they have this massive conflict in front of the White House, no less the symbolism of all that. Uh, I hear a lot of that on this year program from callers and just expressed in general, where frequently it seems black people are way more upset with other black people as opposed to white people who are responsible for all of these problems. I certainly would appreciate hearing commentary on that. Um, the portion where it talks about the sex worker that Freeman uh, has been having these uh, rendezvous with where she has moved up and now she's a high priced call girl with Southern white clientele cowbell. Again, it reminded me of uh, Strom Thurmond who did all this, you know, big talk uh, from Congress about Negras and, you know, we got to do all we can to uphold white supremacy. I believe he has a statue also in South Carolina. They didn't take that down when they took the uh, Confederate flag down last year uh, where he fathered a child with a uh, black, Teen in real life while he was doing all of his work for the system of white supremacy. Uh, I feel like this week I've heard a lot of the line about law and order uh, where he's talking to the general and the general says, honest, sweat and toil, pull yourself up by your bootstraps like the immigrants, these demonstrations and sit-ins stir up needless emotion. I could have sworn I have heard that about eight, 12 times this week in Ferguson, uh, 2016, 2014, 15. I've heard that line a lot. Uh, this book was written while uh, Nixon was in the White House, and that was a big part of his platform, Law and Order. Um, let's see. Next. Last thing I will get in, and then if folks have uh, any of their own comments, uh, feel free. Uh, this line right here I thought really kind of gets to the core of codification, the way that I think about it, where he says, this is for me, it's on the bottom of 66. Um, Freeman had known that it would not be a way. Oh, let me back up and make sure I'm getting the whole thing. The elevator arrived and he wrote it down, walked across the vast marble hall to the entrance and waited at the door for the director's limousine. He had known that it would not be awaiting him at the steps and he showed no surprise, no anger. He had waited many years for what he had to do and a few minutes more for a car was no problem. It might take him many more years to do what he had planned for so long and an impatient man. He had carefully schooled himself in patience. Wow, I at least in my view, that gets to the core 
of counter-racist codification, which I think Dan Friedman's character is demonstrating in this book, where you are not explosive and every time a white person says something racist or even every time a black person does something to get on your nerves, you are not volatile and ready to blow your top uh, and lose your cool and, you know, fight them. And even though he does have a moment where, and he even acknowledges that he kind of blew his codification. He could have messed up everything uh, being willing to brawl with this black driver, which is why I think that's such a a significant scene in the line. I just said about his frustration with other black people, Uh, but being patient, I have my own plan. Uh, And I think Mr. Fuller has talked about that before. That's what it means to be a professional soldier. Uh, I am not going to be pulled off into just because somebody says something, they call me a nigger or they make a slick comment or whatever the case may be. I have my own agenda. And if there is going to be counter violence, I have a plan for that, too, where even that is going to work out to my benefit. It's not going to be uh, somebody said something slick or causes me to deviate from my plan and get into some fricas or what have you. And that has totally you know, messed up my overall objective that I had planned out for the next six years. I think that just massively important line and the importance of not being surprised when you start to understand racism, white supremacy. I expect these types of things to happen, even slights by other black people. I'm not upset about it. I'm not surprised about it. It's not going to make me emotional. That doesn't mean that I accept this without doing anything. It just means I understand this is white supremacy. This is the problem that I'm trying to solve. And I'm even going to be strategic in how I deal with this really important uh, bit of uh, explaining. I think really fleshing out what we mean when we say counter counter racist codification. I'll spot, uh, I will stop there. Uh, any additional comments uh, about what we heard? I definitely wanted to make sure that uh, people, if you have comments, because it does seem like a major element, Freeman's conflict with other black people, and particularly him saying that he was really, really upset. It seemed like it challenged his patience a lot more, uh, his frustrations with other black people, why that is, uh, and thoughts about that, the symbolism of him. Uh, almost getting into a brawl with this black limousine driver in the nation's capital, Chocolate City at the time, uh, at the White House, no less, the symbolism, uh, thoughts around that. And, uh, yeah, that's it. If, if you want to respond to that or if you have your own personal observations, you can feel free. Other folks uh, have commentary? Um, can I be heard? Yes, sir. Uh, yes, I wanted to uh, say this before I uh, answer your question. Um the what you were just talking about in regards to your code of, your idea about codification and how it's expressed in uh, Dan Freeman's patience just reminds me of myself because when I was uh, younger and a lot less codified, I was highly reactionary. So it took nothing for me to you know put it on somebody heavy if they did anything or said anything that I felt was um you know disrespectful in any way. It took me nothing to like just you know hurt someone, just, you know, do something criminal to them. And it took me uh, a long time to, and, and especially because it started when I was really young, I started to really understand the um, the system being rigged with white supremacy and just infested with it probably around the age of 16. And there was a, a palpable rage that I carried. So a lot of that helped to facilitate my reactionary behavior and I got a reputation in Brooklyn where I came from for being uh, quick to do stuff like that. So in my older age, um, that is exactly what 
I do now. Like I've really, really worked on patients. I've uh, gotten into meditation. I've been practicing comedic spirituality for decades now. And those things have really helped me to get a grip on my emotions in a way that today um, my reactions would be a lot different than they would have been 20 years ago in regards to, you know, racism, white supremacy, if it's expressed in my direction. Um, so I totally understand where you're coming from. It's something that um, I work on every day still um, just to make sure. And like I said, I do a lot to um, keep in my mind constantly that I am a prisoner of war and I'm on the battlefield anywhere I am as long as I'm on this planet and white people are in control of this planet the way that they are. So um, definitely I agree with you 100% and it's something that I think can be very helpful to a lot of us as far as um, helping us to survive and navigate this uh, terroristic system that we live in. And to get into the um, question that you had about uh, the conflict between black males um, and specifically what was in the movie that was not um, in the book, I think it really just, what's important to me about that is that it really brings home the understanding that this is white supremacy. This is the linchpin of how it functions is for us to bicker with, with each other and to leave the true uh, people that are responsible for our daily misery out of the equation. Um, I think that this, this, uh, and like you said, even the scene where, they, where he was threatening to fight the other black male in front of the White House kind of reminds me of the White House being a symbol of the white overseer watching his two niggers fight for him or to do, for his pleasure or whatever the case may be. And it kind of reminds me, even as a, a person from the Caribbean, I remember um, just in studying the history of slavery and, and racism, white supremacy in the Caribbean, the slave masters used to have competitions between the islands um, as to who can produce the most sugar cane and things of that nature. And actually those sorts of uh, uh, intra-racial just to use that term, but between black people, that fighting between black people carried over even until modern times because um, there was always, at least in, in my understanding and just being a Caribbean male from Trinidad, there was always a beef between Trinidadians and Jamaicans. Um, everybody didn't really like Haitians at all. Very few people did as far as different groups of Caribbean people. Um, you have Dominicans against Puerto Ricans, and these are all things that were, that were facilitated by white people to keep us bickering amongst ourselves. So I think that those scenes and the fact that this is going to be a running theme throughout the book um, would really bring home to us the idea that we should not be squabbling amongst ourselves. Um, I used to think, like uh, Kwame Ture, that if you were a black person who was not about liberation, basically off with your head, you should be <laughs> killed and discarded and we move on to the next. That's exactly how I was for a long time. And um, this listening to this show um, helped to really change that view for me. Um, one of the most important things, the episodes you had that, that brought that home for me was when you had interviewed the black female, um, I'm forgetting her name right now, but she was from uh, Louisiana and she had made the documentary about her experiences during Hurricane Katrina. And her story would, would make, her, make her a poster child for being someone that would be considered discardable due to her background selling drugs and dealing with guns and all of those things. But yet when she got an understanding of the system, she made one of the most incredible and critically acclaimed documentaries on the, what happened to her and 
our people down in uh, Louisiana. So, um, like I said, I think that that's a very important thing, and we should keep that in mind. And hopefully, by the end of the book, it'll bring home for all of us uh, why Dr. Welsing's admonishment to black people and Neely Fuller's admonishment to black people for us not to squabble and bicker amongst one another is one of the most important things to do to collapse the system because that is, I think, one of the most important things that bolsters their ability to control us is us fighting amongst one another and not paying attention to, like you say, the problem, racist man, racist woman, racist child. Thank you very much. That was my... um was my comment as well, uh, Roz, to just bring that, you know, that's one of the 10 stops. That's something that we can really, really work on doing. I mean, it won't, it probably won't happen fast, but we can work on stop squabbling with each other. And so they showcase that in this book and, you know, the author's trying to tell us something. I mean, it's just we need to stop squabbling, and that will put a big dent. That would that would have racism, white supremacy have to go back to the lab and and figure out what else they can cook up because that will really that would really I feel like that would really um, they would they would really have to do something if we all just stop squabbling with each other, and that's just one of the stops. I mean, if we did to stop killing. Yeah, so that was my um, input on that. That's uh oh, Thomas, were you going to comment? Yes, I was. Um, very eloquently said by Ross. Um, I agree. We do need to stop. That would be the biggest blow to the system. Is um, if you have one year with um, probably no murders in the black community, um, then it will really, you know, be a situation where white people are like, what are we going to do about this, you know? Um, um, I do think that it will be impossible to write a book like this and not have that element added into it because that's so much a part of our everyday reality as black people is that anti-blackness and um, the fact that you're going to squabble with anyone instead of be a black person nine times out of ten because you know the outcome that will happen if it's with a white person. And um, it's definitely um, something that we need to work on, and I try to work on it myself. Um, it's hard, but I do try to work on it, and I catch people, um, other people all the time with the anti-blackness stuff, and I, I'm able to see it more now, and I'm like, wow, does it sound good, um, and I try my best. Um, to not do that myself. And um, I tell you, the media, the mainstream white media, they keep this perpetuated. They'll put two, two black people on to talk about their white topics, and they'll sit there and have a heated argument about something that has absolutely nothing to do with them, they have no control over, and um, it, it's just a, a ploy of white supremacy that works so well. And um, the day that decodified to the point where there's no murders, there's no black people on TV arguing about white people's stuff, we'll see a huge change in the way they act, um, either for the best or the worst, but it'll be very obvious. I mean, my wife. Uh, our caller down in Texas, did you have commentary as well, sir? Uh, yes, sir. I, I just wanted to say um, 
I was in agreement with Roger. You did do a real great job uh, on the reading. And um, and I may be wrong when I say this, but one of the very first, well, actually, I, I take that back, one of, one of the very first, but um, Dr. Welding's last Welding Institute, and I believe you played it after she passed away. She said uh, white supremacy stands on two platforms, and one being right intention and the other being uh, people of peoples of color, people of color self hate. If I'm saying that correctly, and so just in the grand surprise, if we can get rid of the bickering and the fighting, you know, we can really collapse this this system if we can get that get that done. And uh, I'll meet my line. For sure, for sure. That was uh, Kimberly. Rivers Roberts, uh, the black female that uh, Roz mentioned, she uh, was a victim of Hurricane Katrina, victim of white supremacy. She did the documentary uh, Trouble the Waters, excellent film on uh, Hurricane Katrina and new project uh, Fear No Gumbo. Uh, You can check out her in the archives from uh, last summer, her visit to the cows. Um, Just, uh, I think, even though the scene where Freeman and the limousine driver uh, are about to brawl at the White House, that is not in the movie and the audio that I started with this week where Freeman and the other black recruit, they are about to brawl. That's not in the book. I think it's it's the same uh, dynamic. And even, even I think that difference, uh, you really get to see it's just anti-blackness at the end of the day. It's not class, uh, you know, Freeman. Uh, being middle class or whatever class you want to put him in and the the black driver, uh, him being low class, that's not the issue. Uh, The issue is the system of white supremacy uh, and one of the main problems, one of the main things that we can do, that anti-blackness and really making an effort to not squabble, fight, brawl with other black people, even if we have a difference of opinion uh, about racism, that, you know, that's one of the main things that I'm going to do is do everything that I can to minimize conflict with other black people. But I do, I just, I find it astounding uh, and accurate that he includes it in the book where Freeman says uh, that he gets more angry about other black people, uh, particularly the black people, I guess, that he feels uh, they're not responding uh, logically to racism. They're just trying to get, you know, a better house, a better car, whatever that is, that he gets more upset with them uh, than with whites. I think that's something that we really need to work on. And I think it's just indicative of the fact that we are not we do not see other black people as victims. Uh, We do not have sympathy, compassion for other black people. Uh, We do not look at black people and say, oh, this is someone who has been confused. This is someone who might be afraid uh, with regards to racism, white supremacy. This is someone who is a victim, regardless of how they're responding, that we just uh, the system of white supremacy has done so much to lead us into any direction other than those type of, in my view, accurate, logical assessments of a black person. It, It will just lead you to any other way of thinking about that black person that will justify you getting upset and blaming a victim of white terrorism, uh, in my view. Um, I thought Freeman, he even had another paragraph uh, or sentence later on with this, uh, the limousine driver, where it says the black Cadillac limousine swung into the drive and stopped just ahead of where Freeman stood. The Negro chauffeur made no effort to get out to open the door. Freeman knew 
that he wouldn't open the door for him, and they would again patiently walk to the car and open the door himself. And he even includes how the driver uh, kind of took off quickly before Freeman was seated, which knocked him to the ground. I am sure the black driver would not have done those things if it was a white person. I think that's uh, brilliant as well that he included that because this is something that we've talked about uh, on workplace racism many, many times uh, where black people where in a job situation, we will treat another black person in a way that we would not treat a white person. Uh, And that's just part of how we have been uh, conditioned. That is a part of the anti-blackness. That is a major component of what is holding up the system of white supremacy, which our previous caller just talked about. Dr. Welsing uh, pointed to that as well. Uh, Any other uh, comments? Anything stood out? Folks want to make sure they get in uh, before we get to audio segment number two. Yes, and I say, I've never seen a difference between middle class and lower class blacks. I've only seen a difference between um, middle class and lower class blacks opposed to upper class blacks. But for the most part, most middle class and lower class blacks live in the same neighborhoods. Um, so it's really, I mean, you you might um, have a better job or, you, you know, your family's in a better situation, but, you know, I mean, that's still looking around the corner from the people that's in a bad situation. So it's really, I don't ever get that class aspect between middle and lower class, you know. I know upper class blacks are, have been able to move out of the inner cities and the black areas and move amongst white people. Uh, but those would be, I wouldn't consider them little. That's, um, they, they think a lot more than a little. I mean, I just don't, upper, you know, but I just don't agree with um, that, that whole class theory that I do find that um, amongst those upper class blacks, they look down on both the middle and the lower class blacks. They're both going to be filled. Uh, as far as my um, dealings with them over my lifetime, um, they would look at me the same way they would look at any other black person that's not on that echelon or that, that don't have the things they have. And um, I'm going to go on that thinking. I would say the only difference between the middle and the lower is the middle may have a higher position on the plantation. That's it. I'm also a victim of that myself. I would be, I guess, what you would consider a middle class, but, you know, it's still the same thing. I'm looked at just like a lower in some circles. Um, I just wanted to say lastly, just before we go to the next segment, um, if we really think about it, the things that we can do to actually destroy the system, we have direct control over. Think about it. If they, I remember seeing a video where a black male talked about from Chicago the fact that white people were coming to Chicago and literally dump guns, like a box full of, a crate full of uh, military grade automatic weapons, just dumped them on the street. And he said all of his friends would run out and just pick guns. And these were the guns that were ending up on the street. Um, he, as an adult, he changed his life and started living, you know, a non-criminal existence. And he said that um, he legally got his gun license and went to purchase, you know, legally purchase weapons. And he actually thought that the weapons he were, were, was, ha- or excuse me, had access to in the street were guns that he would readily have available to him legally. And when he went and started naming the weapons he was looking for, the white people behind the counter would look at him like, these are military weapons that you should not even know exist. How did you get them? 
And he had to explain to them, like, you know, this is how I came into contact with these guns. And think about it. If we said to them when they bring these guns or drugs into our neighborhood, we don't do these things. We do, you can take that and leave. We're not, we don't kill each other in this, in, in this area. Black people don't kill each other anymore. That's the rat. Think about just the things we have direct control over that can shut this system down, which is us not participating in the things that they give us to be self-destructive. And that includes anti-blackness. If we could just take control, like we are under this impression that we have to function on, you know, uh, white supremacist autopilot in, in the form of hating and disrespecting what we see in the mirror in the form of other black people who look like us. And if we took, took direct control of our daily reality and just worked on it a little bit at a time, like Dr. Wilson said, just pick one of the, the, the stops and focus on that until you um, get as close to perfection with that as possible and just add on as you go along. And if we can shift that consciousness on a global scale, it's a wrap for these, for these psychotic sub-animals. It's a wrap for them. Thank you. And I'll hit my line. Yep, absolutely. Going back to Chicago uh, in the second portion uh, of the audio clip, uh, just the only thing I would say with uh, regards to class, I think white people, uh, number one, as I've stated before, uh, in my view, there's only one class, just like there's one race, and that is the white class. They constitute a class to themselves. Everyone else, regardless of whether you have a billion dollars or one nickel, uh, you're still a nigger to whites and they can show you better than I can tell you. Uh, I was thinking of someone who's in the upper class like, I don't know, O.J. Simpson or uh, Kanye West. Whites tend to uh, show better than I can tell what they think of these niggers, but I could be in error. Um, let's see, was there anything else? I was, oh, uh, I did think it was significant as well, uh, even with Joy, the rejection that she faced where I think Mr. Greenlee included the section where because she I guess did not have enough of whatever you're supposed to have. She hadn't, she had only just come out and she maybe didn't have the right clothes or whatever that the other guy, when she was not with Freeman, that she was trying to marry that, uh, his parents, that they did not think that she was up to par either. Uh, and I just think that anti-blackness, it can be manifested in so many different forms because you don't have the correct shoes or you don't have enough money or you have too much money or your hair or just whatever. I mean, even even a lot of the television programs. I know Isabel Wilkerson, uh, she even did a great report on this. Most of the TV programs are showing black people in conflict with other black people, whether it's Empire or a lot of these reality shows, uh, whites, they really make an effort to just keep that going. Conflict with other black people, fussing with other black people, even if it's taking real events. They'll take some of the things, the shootings that have happened this week, they'll take that and then get two black people on television to argue and bicker uh, about whether black people should be protesting or they shouldn't be protesting or how we're handling all of this. Uh, just masterful at taking the attention off of the global white minority and focusing it on black people. I think just if we could really grasp that and realize we could neutralize it, we could neutralize that by making every effort to not squabble with name, call fight brawl with other black people that that alone would put major damage, major pressure on the system of racism, white supremacy as, as all of our callers have stated uh, with that. Uh, we'll go ahead and get started with the second audio segment. Uh, if you have comments that you didn't get to share, uh, just make a note. We should have ample time once the second audio segment concludes. Uh, we're picking up on Chapter 8, 
chapter 8, uh, Mr. Sam Greenlee's The Spook Who Sat by the Door, Context of White Supremacy. Chapter 8. Freeman was toward the head of the line waiting to board the Friday noon flight from New York to Chicago. He had closed his New York apartment, shipping those things to Chicago he had chose to keep. He had listened to some jazz, attended several plays, and shed his old cover as a snake sheds its skin. He boarded the plane and seated himself, moving with the grace and economy of a fit and well-trained athlete. Gone the insecure shuffle, the protective, subservient smile, the ill-fitting shoes. The new Freeman, J. Prest, Brooks Button Downed, seated himself after placing his carry-on bag beneath the seat, fastened his seatbelt, and opened a little magazine with a psychedelic cover to an article urging the legalization of pot. When aloft, he asked the stewardess if he might mix his own martini. He had once ordered a martini on a flight and found that the label proudly claimed a mixture of an 11 to 1 ratio. Freeman, particularly the new Freeman, was a 4 to 1 man on the rocks with a lemon twist. By the time he had finished his drink and eaten the plastic lunch, the plane was beginning its descent to O'Hare Field. He moved forward to the terminal gate and caught sight of his new boss. Freeman accepted his outthrust hand. Dan, how are you? Welcome back to Chicago. Glad to have you on board. Thanks, Mr. Stevens. It's good to be back. Dan, he smiled with an air of a man bestowing a gift. Call me Steve. They moved down the wide tunnel with the crowd toward the huge main hall of the terminal building. Right, Steve. Freeman smiled back. Did you receive the last batch of material I mailed you on the foundation and its work? Yes, I thought the brochure superb. The best PR firm in Chicago did that. My old advertising connections come in handy. That brochure will prove invaluable in fundraising. Never underestimate the power of advertising, I always say. Any baggage to claim, Dan? No. I only brought this bag with me. I shipped everything else ahead of me. It should be in my new apartment now. Fine. There's no need to stop in the office. We'll drop you at your apartment. Now, you take as long as you need settling in. No pressing need to report into the office before late next week. I'll be in Monday morning, Steve. They walked through the automatic doors to the exit and stood waiting at the curb. Stevens motioned to a Ford station wagon across the way. Imprinted on its front doors was the legend, Southside Youth Foundation. I remembered you and Perkins worked together years ago when you both worked for the Mayor's Youth Commission, so I had him drive me down to pick you up. The car slid to a smooth stop in front of them, and when they were seated, 
Freeman leaned over to shake the hand of the slim Negro seated behind the wheel. Perk, what's shaking, baby? Hey, Dan, good to have you back. He moved the car smoothly into the outgoing traffic and south on the Dan Ryan Parkway. Dan, said Stevens, withdrawing pipe and tobacco pouch. You have your work cut out for you here, but since you're familiar with our operation, it should shorten the breaking in period. Your first job in social welfare was with the foundation, wasn't it? Before I took over? Yep, we worked out of a storefront on 53rd Street. We've come a long way since those days, said Stevens proudly. Our new headquarters are worth more than a million, and we've had several sizable grants since I took charge. How's the contact with the street gangs? As well as could be expected, except for the Cobras. They won't let our street workers near them. Call us Whitey's Flunkies, said Perkins. We're hoping your appointment might change the image, Dan. Stevens toyed nervously with his unlit pipe. A meaningful contact with the Cobras and we could get that Ford Grant the next day. They were on a real Afro kick for a while, said Perkins. We thought they might have some connection with one of the Afro-nationalist groups, but it doesn't seem so. But we can't discount that possibility. It's one of the things we'd like to know about the Cobras, Dan, said Stevens. They had moved through the hole cut for the expressway through the bowels of the main post office, and now they were moving south again on the outer drive. They're potentially the most dangerous gang in Chicago, said Perkins. The Cobras will be my personal responsibility. I'd like their file to study over the weekend, Steve, if I may. Fine, Dan. I'll have Perkins deliver it to your apartment later this afternoon. Perk, I want to check out the Cobra turf tomorrow. Pick me up at my place at 10 o'clock. Saturday night should be a good time. You know the Cobra turf, don't you, Dan? Asked Perkins. I ought to. I grew up over there. I was the Cobra Warlord when I was a kid. They used to call me Turk. I never knew that, Dan, said Stevens. Yeah, the gang goes on. Street gangs and churches are about the only durable social institutions in the ghetto. You've certainly come a long way since your days as a Cobra, Dan, Stevens said proudly as if personally responsible. They stopped in front of the pretentious entrance of Freeman's apartment building. I'll see you first thing Monday morning, Steve. I'll see you right after that, Perk, and I want a meeting with the street workers at three in the afternoon. Good to see you taking charge this way, Dan. How about lunch on Monday? Fine, Steve. See you then. Freeman felt things had gone well and he anticipated no trouble from Stevens. He entered the building, took the elevator to his floor, entered his new apartment, and began perfecting his new cover. In less than a month, the apartment 
said everything he wanted about the new Freeman. Cantilevered bookshelves covered the wall of one end of the living room. He drank and served Shiva's Regal, Jack Daniel's Black Label, Beef Eater's Gin, Remy Martin, Carlsberg, Heineken's, Labatt's, and Ballantine. He had matching AR speakers, antique cabinets, Gerard changer with Sure cartridge, and a Fisher solid-state amp with 75 watts power per channel, a Tanberg stereo tape recorder, a color television set which could be played through the stereo system, and videotape completed the system. There was a Bukhara prayer rug on the plastic parquet floor, wall-to-wall nylon carpeting in the bedroom, and wall-to-wall terry cloth in the bathroom. His glasses were of crystal, his beer mugs pewter, his salad bowl dansk, and his women phony. He slipped on his cover like a tailored suit, adjusting here, taking in there, until it was perfect and every part of him except a part of his mind which would not be touched was in it and of it. He found that most people did most of the work as far as his cover was concerned. They wanted him to be the white type, uptight negro of rising aspirations and desperate upward mobility. He chose his wardrobe with sober, expensive care, opened a number of charge accounts, and slid into barely comfortable debt. He fell into step with others like himself, safe, tame, ambitious Negroes marking time to a distant drummer, the beat hypnotic, unsyncopated, the smiles fixed on their faces, heads held high to pretend the treadmill did not exist and that their frantic motion was progress. More white than whites, devout believers in the American dream because fugitives from the American nightmare. The yawning chasm of a ghetto misery at their Brooks brothers' backs. They trod its edge warily their panic hidden behind bright smiles and the sharpened wiles to tell the boss man what he wanted to hear. Freeman attended dull cocktail parties, becoming a bachelor to invite, a prized escort. He was playboy suave, witty, well-dressed, and never drunk or disorderly. He could talk Time, Life, Newsweek, or Sunday, New York Times, Manchester Guardian, New Statesman, or Little Magazine, New York Review of Books. He could talk Antonioni, Truffaut, Polanski, Hitchcock, New Wave, football, basketball, track, and boxing. He had a way of making a comment and making it sound as if the listener had said it. He could flirt with women without angering their men make the fairies feel at ease and turn down their propositions without bruising their ego. He ran into joy in the bar of the Parkway Ballroom and made a rendezvous for an afternoon the following week at his apartment. 
he told himself that he would not be there when she arrived right up until the time she walked into his apartment bronze lovely bewigged and smelling of arpege she walked gracefully around the apartment inspecting it minutely stroking feeling touching while he mixed their drinks he handed her her drink and she smiled cat-like at him taking a sip rob roy honey you never forget anything do you it's wonderful to have you back the grapevine is saying all kinds of things about your new job they wanted to slide me into the number two slot prop up some white boy but I wasn't having any whatever happened to dedicated Dan I knew a time when position wouldn't have been as important as making a contribution you've changed honey no reason why I can't make a contribution and make some money at the same time how much is the job worth I'll be able to live on it I used to be in the game too remember I could make a pretty good guess the poverty program really inflated salaries Everybody's getting more money and social welfare nowadays. Yep, everybody but the poor. Next year, the president will be handing out Washington appointments to buy the black vote. And with that much time in your new job, you'll be in a good position for one. More money and in Washington where the cost of living is lower. She leaned forward for a light watching him shrewdly over her cigarette. Maybe I shouldn't have been so impatient. I always knew you'd change. You like nice things as much as I do. We're really two of a kind, Dan. You're just more romantic about it than I am and more idealistic. You always did get your nose open about slogans to save the world. Too late now, baby. You have a husband. After a fashion, his drinking is worse and he'd spend all his money on women if I let him. I don't care how many he has as long as he's cool with it and I have enough money to have whatever I want. His latest scene is a white girl on Northside and from Alabama. Can you top that? You had him followed? Sure. I don't care what he does as long as I know it. We'll have to have you by sometime soon. No thanks. You know we never dug one another. Why should you be bugged? You know he never forgot we had a thing. He'd have a fit if he knew I was here. He listened to her chatter about her apartment her hired help, her new car, and her wardrobe, and thought she had come a long way from the girl from the Detroit slums he had known years ago in East Lansing. Her voice was polished, her mannerisms and gestures assured. She wore her expensive clothes with easy grace. She wore an expensive wig, and he found himself wondering 
if she removed it when she made love. Later, he found out that she did. In order to confirm that the Cobras were the best organization for his plans, Freeman studied them carefully from a distance. He talked casually with anyone in the neighborhood willing to discuss the Cobras. He carefully built personal dossiers of each key gang member, in particular the gang leaders Dean, Scott, and Davis. He gradually worked out their chain of command and was pleased to find it efficient and effective. The rigid discipline of the gang impressed him more than anything else. Discussion was permitted, even encouraged, but once a decision was made by one of the commanders, that decision stood. For most of the gang members, the Cobras provided the only family they had ever known, offering protection, affection, a sense of belonging, a refuge, and haven from the unremitting hostility of the outside world. Once certain of the Cobras, Freeman made his move. He casually walked into their pool room headquarters not far from the South State Street one cool evening. He walked to an empty table in the rear, selected a 16-ounce cue, rolled it on the table to test it for warp, and began running balls. The owner of the pool room walked the length of the room to Freeman's table. Look, mister, he said, I think it might be better for you and for my place if you took one of the other tables. I like this one, said Freeman, without looking up from the table. This table is used by the leaders of the King Cobras. He waited expectantly. Freeman continued to run balls and did not answer. The man sighed and walked away, shaking his head. Freeman hadn't had a pool cue in his hands in years. He had spent much of his adolescence in pool rooms and it came back quickly. The easy stroke, wrist relaxed, the follow-through, English to leave the ball ready for the next shot. When he had run the balls, he tapped the butt of the cue on the floor and the owner walked to the table and racked the balls. He broke the varied colored pyramid, studied the table, and began shooting bank. He noticed the sudden silence in the room while studying a difficult shot. Without looking up, he shot a bank shot twice the length of the table. Before the ball could drop into the left-hand corner pocket, a black hand intercepted it, held it a moment until Freeman looked up, then carefully replaced it on the green table. Freeman looked at them across the length of the table, three cobras staring at him silently. He returned the stare. The room was silent, no click and clatter of ivory ball against ivory ball, the chatter and banter of the players gone from the smoky room. They stood silent and dangerous just beyond the light suspended above the table. Freeman chalked his cue, still staring at them, then lined up his next shot. Freeman knew them. Do Daddy Dean, the gang leader, Sugar Hips Scott, secretary, treasurer, and tall and deadly Stud Davis, 
the warlord, and at 19, the oldest of the three. This is our table, the voice came from the shadows, low, soft, and dangerous. I want to talk with you. No talk, man. Move out. No talk for social workers, man. You know who I am? Yeah, we know who you are. Let's step outside and talk. It won't take long. Just a few minutes. You don't want to talk, man. You just want to go home. Better that way. I don't ask no more than asked too much already. Freeman motioned to a door in the rear, which opened onto an alleyway. I'll wait for you out there. He walked out into the darkness and waited facing the door. They came out silently, spread out to arm's length, and without preliminaries moved in. Freeman moved swiftly, crabwise, in a circle to his left, bringing himself closer to the man on his left and away from the other two. He stabbed toward his eyes with stiffened fingers, and when he covered, Freeman gave him a stiff-fingered jab elbow and wrist locked, his arm in close to his body, to his opponent's solar plexus. When he doubled, Freeman pushed him into the legs of the one in the middle and in one motion moved to meet Stud Davis. Davis fainted a left and crossed a right, catching Freeman high on the head. Freeman countered with a left and right, which Davis slipped, then he kicked Davis hard in the ankle. One of the others was rising, the one he had not hit, and Freeman whirled and gave him a judo chop just below the left ear, dropping him. He turned to Davis and threw him with a foot sweep to his good ankle. Freeman moved to the door of the pool room, shut it, returned, and sat on an upended coke bottle crate. When they stirred, he had them covered with a snub-nosed Smith & Wesson thirty-eight revolver. Don't move. Just sit there and listen. Next time we see you, social worker, we have that too. You ain't going to shoot nobody. Small time, and you sure as hell ain't going to shoot me. Now you shut up, or I'll pistol whip all the black off your ass. You think you bad. The king-ass cobras. Nobody messes with you. You make Molotov cocktails and burn and loot supermarkets. Yeah, I know what you were doing on the west side in July when they had the riots over there. Three supermarkets, a pawn shop, two furniture stores, and a television store. That color TV in the pool room came from there. They stared at him in sullen silence. The big-time cobras, lifting cameras and small-time shit from pawn shops, sniping at cops with pistols and twenty-two rifles from the rooftops. You know how much chance you have of hitting anything with weapons like that from that range at night? What the hell are you trying to prove? He looked at Stud Davis. The fuzz wasted three snipers and wounded eight others, and the only casualties they had was from getting hit by bricks and bottles. 
you're damn lucky they didn't hit any of the cobras. Okay, you want to hurt Whitey. You want to mess with Mr. Charlie. Then stop playing a bunch of punk games. You didn't do any more damage than a mosquito on an elephant's ass. Freeman paused. He had their attention now. You really want to fuck with Whitey? I'll show you how. And that will do it for this week. We will pick up on Chapter 9 next Friday. Context of white supremacy. If folks have comments they would like to share, the number to dial 641-715-3640. The code is 564-943-POUND. Press star 6 if you would like to participate. Uh, all the folks who dialed in with a hand up, uh, this is another time I will encourage, please do not wait until the last minute. If you think you have comments you would like to share, uh, go ahead, get your hand up now. That way we don't have people sliding in when it's two minutes left, 30 seconds left, and oh gosh, I have, you know, five or 12 things I would like to share. Go ahead, get your hand up now. We have uh, more than a half hour. You should be able to comment, share anything that you like. All the folks who dialed in with a hand up, your line should be open. Feel free to participate. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Okay. Uh, interesting, uh, you know, um, Mr. Greenlee being from Chicago, and actually I'm being from Chicago as well. He uses the uh, the Mickey, uh, the Cobras. Uh, technically, they're called the Mickey Cobras uh, here in Chicago. Um, they're under a different name. But uh, during that time where he, uh, uh, during the time where he wrote the book, the, uh, uh, the, the Mickey Cobras were more of a political you know, they, they, they kind of reference them as street gangs, but they were more of a political organization during that time. This was before the drugs started, you know, flowing into the community and everything. So, uh, you know, like reading, reading back on this again, it, it's kind of interesting. He uses, uh, he uses a somewhat the historical uh, uh, organization uh, to, you know, to start his, uh, his plan of, uh, you know, combating against the, uh, combating against white supremacy. So uh, it's an interesting uh, thing that, that he's doing uh, uh, with that in regards to uh, re- referencing the, uh, the Cobras, as, you know, the, the Mickey Cobras as the Cobras in the book. So that's all I want to say. Mm-hmm. Pause for uh, the late Fred Hampton, uh, also former Chicago resident who was kind of trying to do similar things to what we see with Dan Freeman uh, and trying to reorient what some of the uh, gang activity was focused on in the Chicago area and whites summarily executed him for his efforts. Uh, I remember the Black Panther Department, uh, Black Panther Party in Chicago, Fred Hampton. Uh, other folks who dialed in with a hand up uh, commentary you would like to share? Can I be heard? Yes, sir. All right. Um, I just wanted to start on page 78 where um, Mr. Greenlee writes, fine, there's no need to stop in the office. We'll drop you at your apartment. Now you take as long as you need settling in. No pressing need to report into the office before late next week. That stands out simply because we always talk about replacing white supremacy with justice immediately. 
And I find that because we have been so conditioned to think that this system is um, insurmountable, that we give the, these extended time frames for things when really if we just started practicing the stops alone, we would shut this system down overnight. So I find that when they tell him to report late next week, but he presses multiple times about starting first thing Monday morning, he wants the dossiers that they have on the Cobras immediately. I think that his gusto about getting this done, like he immediately understood what the job is. There's no vacation to take. Let's get busy. And I love that. Um, that's one thing I love about this show. This show for me is, is everything. Like th That's what I love. It's like, get on the business. Let's make it happen. Let's do it immediately because this can change. Just like there's generations going back at least three that have all said they never thought they would see a black president in their lifetime. I said the same thing. And literally overnight, they ushered him in. You know, the white people were happy with who they chose, and they put him right where he is. So the same way that happened, a lot sooner than any, any of us would have ever believed replacing white supremacy with justice can happen just that quick if it's under the right circumstances with, with our people with the correct understanding of what they're dealing with and how to counter it correctly. The next thing I wanted to touch on was um, excuse me, page 84 where he writes, um, why should you be bugged? You know he ain't never forgot we had a thing. He'd have a fit if he knew I was here. He listened to her chatter about her apartment, her hired help, her new car, her wardrobe, and thought she had come a long way from the girl from, from the Detroit slums he had known years ago in East Lansing. Her voice was polished, her mannerisms and gestures assured. She wore her expensive clothes with easy grace. She wore an expensive wig, and he found himself wondering if she removed it when she made love. Later, he found out that she did. I find this paragraph telling because... Um, she talked earlier in the text about where they came from, which, of course, we know is abject poverty pretty much. And she wanted to strive to get what she thought was the better things in life, which were basically mostly things that white people had and, uh, white, and black people who were maybe upper middle class, upper class, uh, might have been able to attain. And, um, again, even here, uh, you know, she, which again, is discussing all of the things that she's obtained. And it kind of reminds me of our ancestors who were in the house, you know, really close to master. So they had, they would get his hand-me-down shoes, his hand-me-down clothes, and they would in turn practice his manners of speech and his mannerisms to reflect the, the quality of the clothes that he had been given by the master. And this kind of reminds me of that mentality because it exists to this day. It's never going away. Um, you know, we see it in all the different, um, you know, just the retarded spending that, you know, those, those of us black people who make good money, we waste so much so just to be like them. And I just find it that we don't understand that that mentality is aping them. And they're, they're not any sort of creature to ape in any way, shape, or form. Um, you know, we as black people had very high standards and, and qualities of existence prior to our contact with them and Arabs. And, um, you know, expressing things the way they express them just because they're in power and they're, they're uh, conditioning you to believe them to be God does not mean that their way is the right way. And then finally, um, I wanted to discuss the section where he had to confront the three leaders of the Cobras. And I find that to be a, a beautiful uh, metaphor for the job we have to do as black people in waking up our people. Him having to put kind of an ass-kicking on them, um, really 
speaks to the kind of mental, you know, shape up that we have to put on those people who don't understand and just be patient and trying to help them uh, gain an understanding to the point where they would want to do something about it. And I find the, um, the, the intricacies with which he had to fight them to bring them to heal in order to have a viable conversation with them um, is essentially, to me, um, a, a metaphor for the struggle that we would have as uh, people who have a better understanding of the system and who are trying to actively do something about it, whether it's through our, um, our united independent behavior or just uh, teaching other people about it um, and just bringing other people to that reality of what we're dealing with. Um, and we just have to fight through a lot of conditioning the way he had to fight them in order to bring them to a point where he could actually get them to listen to what he had to say. And then when you say something like he did, he made sure what he said was effective. And by the time they heard what he had to say, they were interested. They were no longer wanted to shoot him. They no longer wanted to fight him. They wanted to hear more about what his plans were because they understood that he had something of value that they could utilize and basically facilitate what uh, Dan Freeman is trying to get done. So those are the things I wanted to touch on, and um, I think that's just very important for us to think about because we have to be patient with, with other black people. Like we say, actually, that prayer that Gus says at the end of the show, I actually say that myself every day. Um, I even taught it to my son. I taught it to my wife. I said, this is probably one of the most important prayers you can learn because it really helps you to focus on the fact that we are not the problem. White people are the problem. And regardless of what your difficulties are with another person that looks like you, if this system did not exist, those difficulties would not exist. Even before they came to the continent, you know, we did not have these sorts of problems that we had after we encountered them. So we just need to work hard towards that. Thank you, Dr. Caroline. Ashe, well said. Uh, any of the folks that we've not heard from, uh, did you all have uh, commentary you wanted to get in? Hope we do not have uh, stragglers uh, waiting until we get to the last minute or so. I will uh, get in some of my uh, observations as well. Um, I guess first thing, uh, I will get in my Welsing moments. Uh, I am reminded, another Chicago native, uh, I am reminded of Dr. Welsing's work repeatedly uh, as we have been reading, even in the first first section when they were driving in Washington and they see the Washington Monument and he, you know, uh, talks about it being a phallic symbol. Immediately, my thoughts went to Dr. Welsing and her analysis uh, of the Washington Monument. It's in the ISIS paper. She's talked about it in many of her lectures and what have you over the years as well. Uh, and then uh, the last scene where Freeman is about to meet the Cobras and have their brawl and, and kind of uh, initiate the next phase of his plan. He's playing pool again. Dr. Welsing, uh, she has uh, beautifully uh, deconstructed right in the ISIS papers uh, the symbolism of that game, uh, another phallic symbol uh, with the, uh, the stick, uh, and then uh, the balls. He had talked about that earlier. Your balls are going to be controlled, where she submits that that's what the game of billiards is all about, uh, the white ball dominating uh, and totally removing the black ball's symbolic castration, if you will, from the table uh, green flat that you think the oral was flat so that's supposed to be representative of the world, uh, totally removing the 
non-white balls uh, from the table, the earth, uh, and the winner when you can remove the black ball from the table. Uh, I think that is, uh, I just cannot think that that is a coincidence, that that is the scene. That's what he's doing when he meets the Cobras to initiate the next major phase of his plan, uh, retraining these black people and getting them to switch their focus from the small-time things that they're doing in Chicago to, to being serious counter-racist soldiers uh, against racism, white supremacy. That is uh, fascinating on many levels, in my opinion. Uh, some of the other things that uh, stood out to me in the second uh, portion of the reading. Uh, he starts off this section where he's on the plane. He's flying back in uh, to O'Hare Airport in Chicago. Uh, he says a little magazine with a psychedelic cover to an article urging the legalization of pot. Mm. This is published in uh, 1969. Uh, I would just submit that we want to fast forward things. We do not want legalization of pot uh, to help get black people out of greater confinement and many of the other problems associated with the war on drugs we want an end permanently to white terrorism white supremacy and then we can you know have a discussion about pot and its usefulness and whether that's something that we should be promoting uh also just including since we had the program earlier this week about melanin and nicotine uh and the deliberate targeting of cigarettes uh to black people there are a lot of smoking scenes in the book and the film uh that right there uh that's one thing i wish we could knock that out so we don't have so many uh characters smoking or if that is going to be there to directly tie that to racism white supremacy as well uh in fact the timing of all of this this would match up precisely uh with when the major tobacco companies when they started really targeting uh, black people, particularly for menthol cigarettes, not that they hadn't been doing marketing and things before, but they really started an uptick uh, in the latter 60s, early 70s with those menthol cigarettes, cool Newport, all of that stuff. They really started going aggressively uh, at about this time period. So the smoking uh, stood out differently. I don't think I had really paid attention to that before, but particularly after the research we did this week with Dr. Uh, Valerie Yerger, who wrote a nice note and thanked all the listeners for your great input as well. Uh, but that stood out in a different way this week with all of the, the smoking that's in the, uh, in the book and the film. Um, the section uh, where he's talking with Stevens and they're kind of getting to know everybody in the city and what they're going to be doing. Where they say, uh, yeah, the gang goes on. Street gangs and churches are about the only durable social institutions in the ghetto. I thought that was a fascinating remark. Uh, might be accurate. And if so, I would say then that might, to me at least, suggest that whites, racists, have a vested interest in these quote-unquote institutions being viable uh, amongst black people. Uh, churches that are promoting the religion of white supremacy and uh, racist iconography, white Jesus, uh, and then uh, gangs uh, that is just going to further uh, criminal activity and uh, predation against other black people, terrorism against other black people to make it more difficult uh, for us to try to solve some of our problems and uh, to feed into us the anti-blackness, us focusing on and being violent with other black people. Uh, the next portion where... Uh, the sentence or the, uh, yeah, this is all one sentence where he says uh, Freeman could flirt with 
uh, flirt with the women without angering their men, make the fairies feel at ease and turn down their propositions without bruising their ego. I am not sure how that section would read and what the commentary, particularly if this book was being read uh, at a predominantly white or historically white institution, I don't know how this would be read now, even amongst many of the Black Lives Matter circles. I don't know if uh, people would be black, black people even would be blasting uh, Sam Greenlee as homophobic. uh, And he is, you know, including some sort of bigotry uh, against black gay people. And this is why their plight needs to be pointed out specifically, uh, as we've seen a lot in the Black Lives Matter uh, movement over the past couple years or so. Uh, when I read this, it did not, to me, seem like something that was attacking uh, or belittling uh, black gay people. Uh, it just acknowledged their presence and moving forward. Not that they should be uh, beaten, not that they should be, you know, we can't have them at the bathroom or we can't have them at the party. Uh, just they're here and moving forward. And even they're here and dealing with them without even offending them. Uh, that's the way it struck me. It did not strike me as someone who had some sort of a vendetta or problem uh, with black people who identify as gay or whatever the term is going to be. But I would be curious as to how that portion of the book would be read now. Um, let's see. The next thing. Where Joy, uh, now she is married and her husband uh, is cheating He's having, I guess, multiple affairs, even cheating with a white woman. As I said, it seems like that is a recurring theme in this book, sexual intercourse with whites uh, and how predominant that seems to be. Uh, This was written in the 1960s, widespread activity. Um, We'll have to see continuing if if it becomes explicitly stated uh, by Mr. Greenlee that this behavior has been one of the major reasons we have not been able to solve this problem. I know this is going to pop up again later in the book, but just saying for right now, uh, be curious to see if, if he makes it uh, more explicit that this is totally incorrect, that the non-white person is always being exploited. And this is something that also is in our control that would go a long way to helping us solve this problem. Also, just with the, it just seems like the, the super superficiality of all of this, uh, that you're married, but both people are unfaithful in the marriage and just doing a lot of things to give the appearance that things are better than they are. I think there's a lot of that that gets encouraged in the system of racism, white supremacy. I even remember some of that from Leonita McLean, uh, Foot in Each World, also a Chicago native. Uh, a lot of overlap here. Um, it seems, but that seems to be a, a major pattern uh, because we are suffering, uh, because we are in so much pain, but masking that uh, so that people think that we have more money than we do, so that people think that we are not hurting as bad as we are, just constantly uh, having the mask, uh, as Paul Lawrence Dunbar wrote in his poem, uh, constantly having to lie uh, about how things really are. And I think that just, uh, again, if we could just be honest, be honest with ourselves first and foremost, not lie. I think Mr. Fuller, when he says that black self-respect, uh, a core tenant of that is not lying to yourself. And then I think progressively work 
uh, to not lie to others as well, particularly making an effort to not lie uh, to other black people. But it just seems like there's a lot of that uh, that is going on in the book that I think Mr. Greenlee is accurately critiquing, uh, that that also the system of white supremacy is the primary thing that is holding that together is deception. And if we could just get away with that and really make an effort, that's why I say on the program consistently, that's something that we should all be making an effort to do. Strive for accuracy as often as possible. Strive for truth. Uh, that will go a long way to helping us solve this problem uh, because this racist, they benefit big time uh, from as much deception and lying, not being honest about things. They benefit from that always uh the last thing that i'll get in and there there are many of these i'm just pointing this one out but there was a lot of this even in the first audio segment as well uh when freeman has his brawl i guess these will be two i'll connect them when freeman has his brawl with the three members of uh the cobras i don't know if people have seen the movie uh they live Uh, i know that gets talked about quite a bit we've talked about it on this program before uh mr josh wickett uh he wrote a counter-racist review of the movie it's at uh the code.net you can check it out uh, i think i've read the the that review in its entirety on the program before i think that narration of that review is on youtube i believe but um the scene in that movie it reminded me when the white character is going to the black guy and he's trying to tell him that things are not what they appear to be and you need to put these glasses on so that you can see what's really happening and they have this long brawl before he can finally put the glasses on where so many people have said that that is about the size of it when you are attempting to share counter-racist information with other black people where that's about what it seems, uh, where it's so contentious uh, and it just seems like, you know, major epic conflict. Almost it's going to be a civil war to share this information uh, to get the person to grasp what racism, white supremacy is and how it works, that the way that we are currently viewing things, thinking about things, is not accurate. Uh, That came to mind with that whole scene where they have to have this big brawl uh, to get them to grasp what it is that Freeman's goal is, what he wants to do, the information he wants to share with them so that they can have a bigger impact uh, in warring against racist man, racist woman, racist child. Uh, Also, even before I get to the, the last point, I'm even reminded when he is kind of admonishing them saying you know the running around that you did and robbing these pawn shops and liquor stores that you know you did no damage at all like nothing about that you're not harming racist you're not harming the chicago police department like you're doing no damage it's about the size of a mosquito biting an elephant it's nothing uh that's kind of the view that i take about all the running around in the street uh i certainly you know it's vgq people can do what they want but that's the same position that i take just because I have not seen where anything that we've seen this week, I've seen it all before. Uh, It just, to me, it's like the Negro shooting of the week. Uh, It was, you know, Philando Castile earlier and Sandra Bland last year and Eric Garner before that and Michael Brown before that and Eleanor Bumpers before that and da-da-da-da-da. I mean, we'll just go on. It'll be somebody else next week and you can go out in the street and run around and you can burn down a store or a CVS or a gas station or a quick trip or whatever it happens to be. None of that really does any damage to whites. Uh, it really doesn't. You just, I mean, and the evidence shows that. 
it wouldn't keep happening if it did any damage to them. That's pretty much the same position that I have taken. I know a lot of people don't agree. I even heard Roland Martin where he was saying that that is uh, a false conclusion because now the police have body cameras and what have you. And you know, it, to me, that just means that we'll have new snuff videos now where you'll get to see the shooting of the week from 50 different camera angles. And, oh, look, and now he's down and bleeding on the street. And the audio commentary from what the officer said as opposed to stopping this so that we don't have another dead black person on Monday and the week after and the month after, etc. At any rate, the thing that I really wanted to get to uh, where he says, uh, you ain't going to shoot nobody small time and you're sure as hell ain't going to shoot me. Now shut up or I'll pistol whip all the black off your ass. It reminded me, we read Asada Shakur's autobiography where she has a really eloquent passage. I should have pulled it up to read, but I think I can bring it from memory where she says that an insult was always made emphatically worse by not just calling someone a bastard but you're going to be a black bastard and i think there are a lot of points in the book just from what we've read in the first two weeks where there's conflict with a black person and it's i'm going to beat your black ass or i'm going to beat the black off you where it's really emphasized in the conflict your blackness and the damage that I'm going to do to you as a black person really gets emphasized. And again, I just I really think it just brings to the forefront the anti-blackness, even in, in this scene where he is confronting the Cobras because he wants to help them. He wants to share information to see if he can make them a more constructive band of counter racist soldiers, even in initiating that in the conflict it is emphasized about their blackness being pistol whipped being beaten off of them and i just i think that that is is fascinating it really gets to the core uh, of the anti-blackness and how we have been contaminated uh to have such an abysmal view uh of our melanin and i'll hush there uh folks have anything else they want to get in feel free if anything i said didn't make sense you can let me know that as well yes sir yeah so yeah absolutely right and um a lot of that has to do with the uh, definition of the word black as well. Um, black means a lot of bad things. So to put it into the, the put it into that adjective part, it really doesn't. It just adds emphasis. Um, sort of like a curse. Um, also, that was the type of rhetoric that blacks heard their whole lives um, from the slave masters, from white people, and um, they usually knew. That um that that usually meant that something bad was about to happen, so it, it kind of I think stimulates that part of your brain that triggers that oh, okay it's you, you need business now. Um, uh, I just wanted to really chime in and say that the in research um the gangs in Chicago have always been um sort of revolutionary um at the assumption of them um they did have a a very pro-black agenda, um, trying to leave off where the, the um, Panthers left off. But um, I think that the, the system itself has corrupted that, you know, with, with the influx of the, the cocaine and things of that nature um, in the late 70s, early 80s that kind of divided those games and um, they started fighting for territories as opposed to uh, fighting the system. And um, I'll meet my wife. Uh, can I be heard? Yes, sir. Okay. Yeah, I, you know, I wanted to add to. Um, I don't see a difference between the character Joy and the Dahomey Queen because 
both women are getting into relationships for monetary reasons. Uh, it, it, you know, uh, listening to, uh, reading uh, to Joy and talking about her husband, you know, sleeping with other women and just, you know, just doesn't bother her. It's like, you know, I don't see no difference between her and, and, the, and the hooker, you know, because I'm like, they're both, you know, they're both in it for the money. And uh, it's interesting when you were talking about Fred Hampton, uh, I, uh, uh, you know, he, he was the first one to coin the term rainbow coalition because, uh, you know, as you were saying before, Fred Hampton was trying to get together uh, with the Cobras, with the real Cobras of Chicago, uh, because, uh, you know, according to COINTELPRO, they were sending uh, letters signed by the Black Panthers, you know, about this, you know, rivalry that was going on. And then, you know, as soon as, you know, as soon as he's close to merging with them, you know, Fred Hampton gets assassinated. But uh, that, co- that, you know, that term, Rainbow Coalition, is always attributed to another Chicagoan, Jesse Jackson. And, you know, it's, it's so funny because I'm like, you know, it's, that was Fred Hampton that, that came up with that term, Rainbow Coalition. And another thing, and this actually ties into the last book uh, that, uh, that you guys reviewed, Blood Brothers. You know, the term African-American, you know, as, as far as I know, has is, is always been termed with Jesse Jackson. But then when I heard you uh, uh when I heard the reading from Blood Brothers and I heard Malcolm Malcolm X, you know, uh uh describe African Americans, you know, that actually had a you know, that was a big light bulb to me. So, you know, just a little connection from the last book that that, that, that we read. But uh and uh, that's all I got. I'll mute my line. I think Jesse Jackson was Afro American, not African American. He coined the Afro American Oh, okay. All right. Yeah, because I always hear African American being being attributed to Jesse Jackson. But okay, thanks for clarifying that for me. Anything else, folks? Want to make sure they get in before we conclude? I will assume folks are satisfied. Uh, the second portion of the reading uh, is pretty faithful uh, to the movie. Uh, it's pretty much the same. Uh, I think the only difference there is a uh, a scene when Freeman first arrives in Chicago and he's just kind of going around talking to some of the black people in the neighborhood and he talks to a black mom and is talking uh, about her son uh, and saying, I think it's even one of the Cobra gang members, uh, where she's saying, um, she's saying that he... He is selling drugs. Uh, I think he's even doing drugs. I think he's doing heroin. Uh, but she insists that he is doing a very small amount. He doesn't have a bad habit. And Freeman, then he goes to talk to her son and is saying, you know, I think uh, that you you should maybe get out of this drug thing. This is not, you know, going to be constructive for you long term. Uh, and plus, uh, he said, you know, I've heard that you're not even paying off the cops anymore. How long do you think they're going to allow you to continue to do this? And, uh, you know, he says, hey, I don't I don't think it's a big deal. And beyond all that, if I get out of uh, selling drugs, 
what am I going to do? You know that whites are not going to allow me to get any sort of uh, gainful employment where I can support myself and take care of my mom and things of that nature. They're not going to allow me to, you know, have any sort of legitimate employment. So what other options do I have? And uh, Freeman doesn't have uh, a ready-made uh, response to that, if, if I recall correctly. But other than that scene not being in the book, it is in the movie, not in the book. Other than that, it's pretty, uh, what we read is pretty much how things play out in the film. Uh, we'll pick up next Friday, same time, chapter nine. Chapter nine. Uh, if folks are listening to the archives and you have uh, commentary, observations, uh, you can email them and then we'll just read them on the program next week. This book is not very long. We are roughly, uh, we're actually about a third. Uh, actually, we're more than a third. We're a little bit more than a third of the way through the book, so we will not be on it too, too long. There might be four sessions left. It might not even be that much. Depends on how it goes. Uh, but feel free to write in if you have uh, commentary you'd like to share based on what you've heard. Uh, we'll be here tomorrow. Compensatory call-in, 9 p.m. Eastern, 8 p.m. Central, 6 p.m. Pacific. Uh, we'll be looking forward to catch up on news and what has gone down. Uh, it's been an eventful beginning to autumn 2016. Uh, we might have two programs on Monday. Uh, the latter program of the day, Marcus Rediker, he is a white man. Uh, he has done extensive research on the enslavement of black people. Dr. Francis Cress Welsing, years ago, she was recommending us uh, that we read more than watch television. And at the time, one of the books that she said she had just purchased uh, to read was Marcus Redeker's The Slave Ship. Uh, that's the book we'll be discussing Monday. Uh, incidentally, Mr. Redeker was one of the consultants for the recent reboot of Roots. Uh, he shared that with me when I invited him to be a guest on the program so we can discuss uh, his role in that as well. But it is... Uh, it is a noteworthy writing. I can say that I'm about halfway through uh, the slave ship where the book is pretty much just devoted uh, to detailed analysis of what the slave ships uh, were like uh, for people who take the position that they think this is all uh, a tremendous uh, deception. Uh, black people were already here and the uh, trans transatlantic transportation of black people did not happen uh, feel free uh, to ask Mr. Mr. Redeker his position on that uh, the first program uh, I'll have to make sure to confirm things but it is a white female uh, in Denmark they had an article in the New York Times earlier this month just talking about the rise same thing that's happening here and in the UK with we're upset you're bringing in all of these non-white people and uh, Denmark is a very uh, homogeneous uh, environment, as they say, way, 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 way high population of whites. So to have this influx of non-white immigrants, they are very upset and becoming very openly, explicitly racist, uh, beating non-white people in this article. They had black people talking about how they had been called nigger and violently attacked uh, on the street for no reason. They interviewed uh, this white woman uh, who might be with us early Monday morning uh, where she alleges that she's working against racism and she's been trying to have groups and what have you to combat all of this, where she's been seeing this rise uh, in xenophobia, as they call it, white supremacist behavior. Uh, we're going to see if we can have her on early in the day just to continue. I think it's important to analyze racism, white supremacy as a global problem. Uh, and to get more details about this area of the world, I believe we even have listeners, non-white listeners, uh, in the area of Denmark. So we should be here uh, double duty. I'll confirm and let folks know tomorrow. Anywho. 
Thanks, everyone, for participating. I hope it has been a constructive investment of your Friday evening. Uh, We'll speak with everyone in about 24 hours. I will state again, sobriety would be best under conditions of white terrorism. That for sure includes cigarettes, alcohol, anything. We would be better clear thinking, lucid, so that we can make phenomenal uh, decisions uh, to keep ourselves as safe as possible. You do not want to be in a vehicle under the influence of anything that is simply going to make things way worse. I don't think uh, being under the influence of cannabis, Jack Daniels, vodka, anything else, I don't think that's going to help you if today happens to be the unfortunate day that you bump into Officer Daniel Holtzclaw, Officer Darren Wilson, any of these other race soldiers, badge or no. This is war, if anything, over the past week. Racism, white supremacy is war against black people. Our conduct should reflect that at all times. That said, we will wrap things up. Thanks again for tuning in. Creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times in all places, each and every time we are in contact with another black person. It has been time. Replace white supremacy with justice immediately. Cow signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, brother. You're a victim. I'm a victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.